a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law Since the day they was born Good old boys uh, Mark Bog beef Fredo Still got it? Never lost it Let's get that money <laughs> Smack dab in the middle of the lightning round <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I accidentally cut in. That was my, that's my vocal warm up. Blah, 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 blah. That's uh, what morning zoo show, Bog Beef. Yeah. <clears throat> that's funny. That's, that's Adam Carolla shit. I love Adam Carolla. That's, uh, what's funny. So he's so good at making fun of that. But like, if you listen to Love Line, like the first year he's there, he's a little, uh, morning zoo. He's he's got a little bit of that morning zoo in him. That's that's kind of how like imitation works. Like I've heard people say this. Uh, the guy that we Saturday Night Live used to have people that like weren't stand ups. They were just there to do impersonations, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the like, especially the first season of that show was a lot different than the way they, the way they do it now. Like, but yeah, there were people. I'm glad you brought that up because I was, I was thinking about that the other day. That was such an important part of that television show. Their political imp- impressions and their political skits, right? You you would have one guy that you would basically hire for the show to pretend to be the president of the United States. Now, I don't watch the show anymore, but I just cannot imagine the president we have right now. How you could make that funny. Yeah, I think Daryl Hammond was probably like the peak uh, of just impersonations guy. But I mean, no, he did do he did do stand up. It was really he was really good. It would be fun to see like, oh, who's going to be the who's going to uh, who's he going to impersonate this week or whatever. Man, this this reminds me. This is maybe this is too too far into the weeds, but this is perfect. You, you Lenny Bruce is like the the a patron saint of like of like libs, right? Because he was like the first. Ooh, I'm a political edgy comedian. I say things I shouldn't say, right? I don't him and him and George Carlin, right? Yeah, but like Carlin, like here's the thing. Carlin's most popular bit was these are words, you, these are bad swear words you can't say on television, and like that's not really political. So like yeah, George Carlin, he was funny. Here's the thing: if you listen to Lenny Bruce, like he's not fun, he wasn't he wasn't fun, I don't think he was funny at all. And I was like, there's only one. Funny Lenny Bruce joke I ever heard in my entire life. I'm going to tell it to you right now because it, it leads into this. In the six, early 60s, there was this guy named Vaughn Meter. And his job was that he was a JFK impersonator. And I don't mean like he was doing like skits on, you know, vaudeville routines. Like he was a public figure. He would put out albums where he was like singing or talking or whatever is JFK. And, like, these were huge hits. I don't think he won a Grammy, but they sold, like, hundreds of thousands and millions of copies. He was doing cameos on, like, every TV, like, every popular TV show. He was, if not a household name, he was really close. Like, Daryl Hammond was not a household name, but this guy was. And his entire job was, I pretend to be JFK. So Lenny Bruce is doing a stand-up <laughs> routine on the evening of November 22nd, 1963. And uh, he, supposedly he comes up on stage and he just sits there for a second. And he goes, 
wow, uh, Vaughn Meter's fucked. <laughs> That's the only funny Lenny Bruce joke I've ever heard. Anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, there's... Uh, <clears throat> what's weird about impressions is... Uh, impressions, I mean, it, it's it's deeper than just... Uh, so there are there is just doing an accurate impression. There's also doing an inaccurate impression that brings stuff out of people. There's also just yeah. like, uh, it, it's kind of like a commentary on that person. Like I think Norm McDonald's, um, uh, Bob Dole was, is basically like a commentary that Bob Dole is boring and the Republicans should have never ran him. Yeah. He's awkward. Like, yeah. This is every impersonation. Like was Dana Carvey's George HW Bush, the most famous one they did. Probably right. Like he was. That was probably the most their most famous impression of like a president. Don't you think? Yeah. It, but, but if you like, if you watch the way he he did it, he like exaggerates the the weird jittery nerd energy that the first president Bush had, and then you know Daryl Hammond's exaggerating how Bill Clinton's a slimy whatever and you just you, you you've got to take you got to take some part of their personality and you've got to just expand it out into satire for two reasons and you mentioned norm and he he made the best point about this when they asked him about like the impersonations of trump that they were doing he said they're not funny because the people who were impersonating him on the show hated trump and you can't impersonate somebody you hate because that, that's going to be fundamentally mean-spirited you know, you just, yeah. you just, it, it, it doesn't work. Or there's, yeah. I mean, there's, sorry. Good. No, I was going to say, that's exactly right. Like those guys, even when they let, you know, they might not have been voting for a Republican president even back then. Who I don't know. It depends on the guy, but like they didn't have that same level of animosity or this kind of idea that like this person wasn't like a countryman of mine or, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it was just, it was a very different time in the country. Yeah. There were like, hey, so, George W. Bush, like, <laughs> but now pretty much nobody. Well, actually, I have to take that back. He's grown in popularity since he left office, but he was pretty much as close to universally regarded as a bad president as you can be in like the last few years in office. And like, they made fun of him for being stupid, whatever. But they didn't hate him like they hated Trump. And that's that's I've, I've never I've never found a. A decent explanation for why they went so ape shit about Trump, unless it's just the obvious, which is that, you know, like George W. Bush was part of a political dynasty. Trump was not. He's just he was just a, a, a rich guy with a TV show who got into office and started talking stuff uh, talking about reducing immigration. There's a now, good chance that Trump hosted SNL at some point. He did. He did in like 2015. Yeah, he, I thought he, so. Like right before he. I don't know if he was running for president yet or it was right before. Yeah. I, I think it's actually much simpler than that. Like Trump was just not a guy that was supposed to be president. Right. Like we, and we talked about this on the show before, like the generally the way elections have gone is they've been like, you know, contests between two guys that whatever you want to call it, like the deep state, the establishment, the swamp, whatever we're comfortable with being president. They may have preferred one over the other, but like they were in on the joke, both of them, right? Like to some extent. And I think what changed there is like Trump won a primary that he wasn't supposed to win. 
You know what I mean? And that's when, or when it became obvious that he was going to win a primary that he wasn't supposed to win. That's when the hatred really started up, right? Because it, it, uh, even on like MSNBC, that was not the case when he was considered like a fringe lunatic candidate or whatever. No, so, famous. Oh, sorry. I was famously no, Coulter was asked like uh, when they were talking in like 2015 about the primary, she goes, oh, you should, you should expect Donald Trump to win. And like all the people on the M MSNBC panel or CNN or whatever laughed at her and, and like laughed in her face. Yep. yep, exactly. That's a perfect example. And so once he won that primary or it became evident he was going to win that primary, you know, the, me the message just kind of came down from on top that he was dangerous. And, you know, these are the type of people that just sort of believe that kind of messaging. And it just, you know, it spiraled from there. Well, I mean, so th that was on politically incorrect. And so you have like this huge studio audience that was just, uh, that was just dying. And uh, of course, in hindsight, that was the nervous laughter. You know, that's the, uh, I, I think we saw, like, we saw this stuff before with Jerry Falwell, whenever he would be portrayed on TV, there was just like, there was never, there was never any sympathy for Jerry Falwell. And I think basically it's the same thing. It's just, yes. if, if you look at, if you Jerry Falwell supporters, if you look at uh, if you look at a Trump rally, you get the same thing. We're the evil. We're we're the big Satan, and basically all the. I mean, I've heard people, uh, our right wing friends in places like California, will say like, in California politics, like essentially the idea is that you know they have a lot of problems there. None of these problems are directly caused by, let's say, rednecks, but like they're they're sort of. Uh, uh mission statement is that the united states the problems we have is because of the rednecks in the south falwell was a great it was the best example you could use because this is was gonna be my other suggestion it's because it's it's a it's a religious movement that and uh trump is a symbol of <laughs> like i guess like heathens to, to in, in their mind like this he's a religious enemy in a way that George W. Bush kind kind of was, but at that moment in in our in our history, their like their little great awakening hadn't happened yet. So, you know, they they did accuse him of like being you know like Christian uh, nationalist fascist whatever, but I don't know. It never felt like that it had the same teeth. But I think that's because they went from. Like when George W. George W. Bush is president, nominally, nominally, it was still supposedly like a Christian country, right? Uh, oh yeah. I, I mean, obviously, you know, not like second, you know, first, First Amendment, you know, no establishment of a, of a national religion. But like everybody would say, yeah, this is mostly a Christian country, but you have to be tolerant of other people. I think that has changed and and like if you ask someone in 2020 they would say that it is not fundamentally a christian nation anymore i just wanted to touch on one thing bog beef said like that what you said about california politics is sort of idea that like all the united states's problems come from like rednecks <laughs> or whatever one other thing interesting about that i i doubt this is the messaging that's used anymore because now when we go into foreign countries usually it's all about the rainbow flag pretty explicitly but historically, what like if you would be in the developing world, that would actually be the belief that was messaged there. And I assume it it was the State Department 
at some point, if you trace that message back, that was doing the messaging in those countries. But like if America was doing something really unpopular or screwing a country over, it would be like, well, what do you expect? It's a country with a lot of like redneck farmer voters. So they're going to vote in some like over aggressive lunatic like that at one point, again, probably not today was like a very common belief. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't like to hear this, but, uh, <clears throat> okay, so there's like the class politics thing, and it's like uh, it doesn't make you a communist to say that you can look at someone's class position and you can you can predict things about their political beliefs, not 100%. And everything is like this. If you look at someone's race, you can get like a, depending on what their race is, you can get, there's a percent chance you can say, ah, I know you're a white guy. Well, 60% or 70%, I think you're a Republican. Go ahead, Merrick. I can obviously I could predict someone's uh, decibel loudness in the movie theater just, <laughs> just based on a quick glance. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but I mean, so in the old days, I mean, I guess this is more so in a more homogenous situation. This was all this was all done by by uh, uh, population density. You're cosmopolitan. You're you're you know you're you're downtown. You're brushing shoulders with all these kind of different people. This is how. Well, you know, if you're if you're a rural person, you're redneck. Now, I think that still holds to a large percent. As people will every day, someone says, "Aha, I have found I have found a substitute teacher or a uh, or uh, any someone that a uh, a public librarian or a community college <laughs> professor that uh, organized some gay thing or something like that in." in a rural area. Aha. Aha. Therefore this entire thing doesn't work out. No, that you can't do that. Cause otherwise you could say, well, uh, you know, well, uh, Fox has based black guy. Therefore now that's not really how things work. I mean, well, and you know, the people who say that online who are like, Oh, well, here's a, here's a, a clipping of a, a drag show that they did in, um, you know, Boise, Idaho or whatever, by the university, Boy, Boise State University, like, well, uh, this is just proof that like the, the, this divide between uh, different lifestyles doesn't exist. But, like, if that was true, the person who wrote that is is a person who lives in like New York City or San Francisco or L.A. and is is like uh, has radical right wing politics. Well, okay, then then if we're going by that same measure, well, you just proved that uh, cities are actually based. So what what are you worried about? I hate yeah, but- the constant <laughs> aha aha. Without like that, that is that's always just like a bullshit. There's 300 million people in this country, right? So you you have to learn to be a big numbers guy. That's what you have to do. You can't ever go, aha, that's it. I found an example. That we have. There's too many people. There's too many people. It, Merrick, your story reminds me of. I don't know if you guys remember, but like maybe five years ago, uh, there was the first ever pride parade in Kosovo, uh, which is obviously <laughs> like a U.S. protectorate. Uh, so. They should, for people who aren't familiar with Kosovo, it's also a fundamentalist Islamic country, at least to some degree. So they show the photos that came out like on social media all look like, hey, they're having like a legit pride parade like in Kosovo. And then somebody else showed the picture like zoomed out. And it was all people protesting the pride parade with like (laughs) a tiny little group of people in it. And then someone else was able to identify all the people in the parade and they all worked at like the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, so yeah, uh, I want to hit a couple more things real quickly. Uh, so one thing, uh, I was on, I'm Hollywood now. I was on Oron McIntyre's show this week. Um, yeah, you were uh, talking about Elon demanding the release of political prisoners. Yeah. Um, it's just, just the, uh, I don't know if he said just the Buffalo guy, but there's like 400 people, man. It, it's, it's totally insane, but I don't know. I recommend people listen to it. I was, um, I don't know if that one's going to stay, stay on YouTube. I said that election yeah, people are saying I went off on that. I got, I was feeling myself there for a minute. I said the elections were predetermined. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a no YouTube. Yeah, when you're on somebody else's YouTube channel, you can go as <laughs> buck wild as you want to, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I said anything untrue though, but, uh, there's things that you're, uh, not allowed to say, but anyways, um, that was a lot of fun. Eyes of March was the other day. Yeah. Uh, rip big rip. We haven't done any Caesar stuff in a while. We should. Um, I, I just, I need to always say the same thing. I always say, cause people always like, well, you love Caesar. This must be uh, so tragic when he died. I don't think it was tragic. When he, when yeah, he died. We, we should do one about that because I don't agree with that at all. I, 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 I want to, I, I think weigh in on that. Caesar died at the appointed, like this was the, this was the, the, the only time this was the best time for him to die. Why? Because people brought up uh, Napoleon. So Napoleon, same way. There's guys that just don't stop. They're passionate, passionate, passionate men. <laughs> uh, like once they get going, they don't stop. They have no way to stop. And, uh, you know, there, there's people through all through this, through, through history or whatever. And you can see them in entertainment business stuff. These guys, they, they die. They usually die at like 27 or something. There's people that just, they can't stop. They, they don't have the ability to be sated. And that's not, that's not normal. A lot of people just, you know, they, they just want to get rich enough to go enjoy their, their, uh, you know, bass fishing or whatever. These people, they have, they have, they, they just, they, um, they have no ability to be sated. I don't think like an, I don't think it's exactly like an addict. Although a lot of like addicts in recovery get that way. Like a lot of like these super hard charging CEO type guys that just have like zero ability to stop, uh, you know, like working themselves to death or whatever they're, they're, they're getting into like the obsessive thing. But Caesar's obsession was Caesar had a level of honor and distinction and, and, and it, conquering is what you, is what you do and you're in that spot. And so, you know, these guys, they carried around, uh, you know, the thoughts of Alexander and all this kind of stuff. So at the, at the point where Caesar, Caesar was killed, he had conquered everything. He conquered, he had been, he had freaking been to, been to England. That was insane. I mean, that's just showing off. That's just, you've taken over everything. And, we know what we know what his plans were next. This is the plan of everybody. Once they get too big, once they get too big for their britches, is in Rome. Once they have nobody to fight, and remember, Rome is Rome is a machine for war, much like America. I don't know how well the American machine is running anymore, but Rome was a machine for war. That's what it was, it, and it was advanced beyond other uh, beyond other nations. The problem for the machine was that the the place to go next is the place where all the money is. It's in the east. It's in Parthia, uh, modern day Persia, 
and modern sorry modern day uh modern day iran and they were loaded and they had lots of money but the problem was rome that romans are romans are a infantry infantry people you'll notice that basically um the mongols stop really once they start getting into the places where where the romans kicked ass because East is East is places where you need horses. West is places where, and the Romans had had uh, had uh, uh, mounted units. Mm. What was the cavalry? They had they would usually they would usually hire locals for cavalry and use it as, as sort of scout units, light. Uh, especially in the in the Republic era, because the places that they were fighting, you know, in Italy, later Gaul. It wasn't necessarily as important to have to have a lot of a lot of horse, but once they once the empire grew and started moving east, and the in the the Eastern Roman Empire like really leaned heavily into this, they started basically copying steppe people and like you know like Roman uh, Romans didn't have like real saddles, by the way like during the you know the huge expansion of the of the Roman Republic and maybe even the early empire. There's no, you don't have stirrups. You're holding on with your feet to, to not fall off this thing that's running around throwing javelins at each other. Compare that to the people who were like, you know, primitive step herders. Like their technology for fighting on horseback was far in advance of, of the Romans. Like that, this is kind of the, tr- the trick and it, this remained true until gunpowder, really. You didn't want to go out, the, out there on the step and fight these people. You're fighting them on their turf. It's like starting a a, a, a war against, like you know, uh, Finland in the dead of winter. You don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, and like so, you know, America. Like, uh, if you take like uh, the Mongols were reverse. So all the Mongols were cavalry, and they would use. I mean, I'm not going to say a thousand percent. Certainly, they had other stuff. They had siege weapons and stuff like that. But they would they would use. Everybody uses locals. Everybody uses mercenaries and stuff yeah. like that. And they would use mercs as infantrymen. They they would you know pick them up locally because anywhere you go, anywhere you go in the world at that time, that time, um, there's somebody there's somebody that's got a neighbor that's pissed off at them. You know, we saw that in the conquest of the New World. Uh, but anyways, so you know the, the Mongols too. We're talking about picking up. I put recruits in quotes because like it wasn't really voluntary, right? You're you, oh, they, you were you they, had, they they would pay mercenaries. They, they did, definitely. but most people weren't volunteering. They were being voluntold, and it, they picked up a lot of people in China who, like you said, knew how to do like, knew how to do siege works, knew how to do a lot of the things they needed to manage their empire that they simply did not have the expertise or the or the ability to do. But because of those wars they had with China. They were, and they were also. I don't. Yeah, they. I could. You could probably call them like straight up meritocratic. They would bring in people who weren't part of their part of their clans, or or sometimes not even part of their race, and give them high positions of authority if they were good at what they were doing. And like that go that goes a long way. Yeah, that's a good move when you're a small when you have a small numbers. Yeah, you, you you really you. That's a move that you have to do. Now that's not perhaps a great move if you're. If you're China or if you're Rome or something, but about anyways, uh, that's, now the, it, that's the life cycle of the empire. You do that when you're in the expansion phase and it doesn't really matter, but
But the moment you, we flip from expansion to contraction now, all these people who were cooperating are rivals, and all those ties that bound you together are just gone. They just vanish immediately. It happened to the Mongols. It happened to the Romans. And, you know, spoiler alert is happening to us. Yeah, yeah. I heard that someone posted, they said that, um, uh, they quoted, they were quoting Steve Saylor, but I know, um, uh, Malcolm told us the same thing. They said, Steve Saylor said, um, invade the world, invite the world. <clears throat> that basically yeah. that, that's what happens. But, any, but anyway, yeah. so you were talking about that. Uh, so I wasn't, so yeah, the, the siege guys, that was a lot of the people from these, but generally, uh, you're going to pick up a lot of locals, just at least they can tell you the lay of the land and stuff like that. But, um, uh, so, you know, these armies were reversed. So Rome is all, you know, Rome is infantry men and they're going to pick up some, they're going to pick up some cavalry men. They're going to have some cavalry, but they're light cavalry there for scouting and stuff like that. And, um, sort of opening up parts in the lines and stuff like that. Cause you think about like, imagine like what good is a horse in Greece? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The terrain didn't lend itself to that. I mean, I imagine a horse is pretty good. Like a, if for like hauling your water and stuff like that, but you're not like if one of these little Greek guys runs up one of their mountains, what are you going to do? Uh, you need guys on foot. And so the problem was Caesar had in his mind to do what all these other guys were going to do. We're going to go East. We're going to go, we're going to go to Persia and they were going to, and he was going to get his ass whipped and it was going to destroy the legacy. He, his legacy. I, this is one of the reasons why I say it's not a bad thing because his legacy would have been destroyed if he did that. And, became a bit he would become a big loser he, he'd be mr loser and he would have lost well i i wouldn't go as far as say he would have lost but the odds are against him because the romans were not able to crack that nut for a very long time and there were uh, there were emperors dying 350 years later trying to fight those people uh, this this is a good point uh, though i think right like, yeah, you shouldn't invade Persia, but if you're Caesar, what do you do? You can't. Re you can't really stop. And, and if you're if you're a machine built for war, you have to be at war. So what are the what are the choices that he had? Go try to go east across the Rhine, like like his successor did. That didn't work out either. You go east in the per in, in the Persia. It's many many Roman emperors found the problem with that. I mean, I guess you could try to go into like uh, da is it Dacia or Dacia? How how did you pronounce it? You can go into like the Dacia. that region past the Balkans, but uh, you run into all the same problems. The, the the I think the real story here is that not quite by the time of his death, because the empire did expand. You had I guess like what Trajan was the the greatest expanse of the empire, right? I think technically, if you by land mass probably like, they had really gone as far as their supply was able to take them and also like terrain problems like if you can't you can't fight you can't fight the persians in the desert you don't you don't have the means to do it you can't fight the german the the germans in the dark forest britain is a nightmare because it's so far away and you and it's an island which causes i i think that he he had reached the point where there's no easy way to expand anymore, but you have to keep going. If you stop going, that's also a form of death. So you could be right in like his 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 martyrdom at the hands of his 
so-called friends was like the the maybe the best death he could get. But it still is. I don't know. I I, I can't say that it was a good thing or it was the, the right time for him because you know fuck those guys. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean Dante was right to place Brutus. Like Dante said, Brutus and um um who's the and uh, Judas Iscariot are the are the guys at the bottom. They're at the bottom of hell. Yeah, Brutus and Cassius are are in feet first, and Judas is in head first, being chewed on the, by the three heads of Satan. I believe it's been a long time since I read it, but I think that's how it goes. By the way, I want to hold a little accountability here. Something you tweeted out today that I don't agree with. You said that Brutus was the son of Julius Caesar. Yes. No. No, he was. I almost certainly not. He. Okay. First off, um, it's poetically true. Yes, I agree. Like from like in a romantic sense. Yes, that would be yes. that would be awesome. I mean, like because this like first off, I mean, I I don't want to get too squirrely here, but like the absolute facts don't really matter. Okay. What matters is the is the story. Okay, okay, okay. All right, then fair enough. And like the by the way, I mean, so I mean, if we're talking about the facts. The like the real answer is probably like so. Remember, if you're Brutus, first off, in the back of your mind, you think like first off, he could be my daddy. I mean, right now, no, I mean, I don't, I don't think he really could be because he was like 15 at the time Brutus was born, 15 or 16 when Brutus was born. I'm not sure they were in the same places. At that time, because he had all he had problems he was, with Sulla, right? He was Kate, he was he was Cato's sister, Servilia. Servilia was Cato's sister. I know that, but I'm saying I just I don't. These think... people were certainly running in this. These people they were they were the the Roman arist they, these they were the aristocrats of Rome. I mean, 15 years later, for sure, they're having a affair like that everybody knew about, and she didn't she didn't get remarried after that because you know. Caesar was basically her her what's her what's her, her her not secret lover just a lover, but I don't know that's like that's going a long way, saying like, yeah also secretly fifteen years before when he was sixteen years old or I guess fifteen, he also fathered Brutus. I, I don't think it's I don't think like biologically it's true, but I think it works poetically because he he obviously. Brutus's mother loved him. He treated Brutus very well because of that. He might have viewed him as a son. I don't. I don't know. This is this like this event is so shrouded in romanticism and you know storytelling. Like when when I think about Caesar, I think about you don't think about stuff in the textbook or even his his commentaries. A lot of it you're thinking about Shakespeare, right? You know. Well, you I can't less, help this. It's, it's, I less or so, but. I, I don't think, I mean, it's been a while since I've read it, but I don't think Shakespeare uses this, does he? Uh, well, that, does, Shake, not, does Shakespeare use the uh, Caesar is Brutus's daddy thing? I, no, I mean, he doesn't like explicitly say so, but I'm saying the things that we think about Caesar, Mark Anthony, to some extent, Cleopatra, a lot of it's colored by these plays that he wrote. They were awesome plays. Like, they make us think about these these people as characters in a certain way. You know what I'm saying? I would say probably for most people, I mean, for me, I don't think so. I mean, like I had, okay. I had the civil wars like halfway memorized at one point. Uh, I mean, with, with me, it's, it's 
like the ninety percent is the diaries and Plutarch. Okay, but but, but you're right. You're right in general. Because you're right yeah. poetically. Yes, I'm right poetic in the sense like you know we don't know what Mark Antony said at Caesar's funeral, but we know what Shakespeare put words he put in his mouth, and I don't know they're pretty awesome. And I think if you ask a lot of people, they would probably tell you that's literally what he said. That that speech, that funeral speech, was like was real, and and it is true in a poetic sense, but it's not factually true. I, here, here's the, here's like, here's where I'm going to throw a wrench in all this, and I guess it's it's going to invalidate my original. Oh, one second. Bullet of Macedon says all political careers end in failure. Uh, nope. Look up Robert Mugabe. Thank you. Good to you. I'm going to invalidate my original point by saying that one of the reasons why ancient history is is more fun is that you they have to admit that they just don't know certain things, and so that it. it it's filled in with gossip and stories, and that gives you a good sense of history, even if it's if it's not like just the facts. And why that's better than modern history is that modern history is a, a lot of lies that are presented as here's the objective retelling of, of what happened, and like that's nothing new. Herodotus is doing this too, but the thing is like now because of like our weird. Like a weird science religion that that every that most people, if they don't believe in it, they all, they have it as like a side, a side cult that they that they also worship along with their their primary deity. Is that like we think that oh yeah we know we we know the objective facts of what happened from the years nineteen hundred to nineteen forty five. Like we can just tell we can just read them off like a like a, the like a the computer machine from Star Trek and tell you exactly what happened. Does anybody listening to this believe that anymore? Like, no, obviously that's not true. It's it, they're fucking lying. But people don't realize that. I think in Herodotus's time, people read him and thought, "This is a nice story, but it might not have it might not have happened this way." There might not be people in like northern Africa who have uh, like their faces in their chest. That, that that might not be a real thing. There might not be uh, Amazonian women in the North Pole. That that could that could be made up, so that's where that's why eight people like ancient history because How you. How dare you? <laughs> it's like it's kind of like it's kind of like wrestling. You know it's you know that it's it, it's at least partially fake, but that doesn't make it less fun. It makes it more fun in some ways. Okay, but I don't want to go too crazy with that. I mean, uh, I mean, Caesar was real, which by the way, people tried to dispute that and. Uh, Recovering Midwit says Wikipedia agrees with me. Uh, let's go further. <clears throat> it is said, moreover, the Caesar was also con- concerned for his safety and ordered his officers not to kill Brutus in the battle, but to spare him and take him prisoner if he gave himself up voluntarily. And if he persisted in fighting against capture, let him alone and do him no violence. And that Caesar did this out of regard for Servilia, the mother of Brutus. For while he was still a young man, as it seems, Caesar had been intimate with Servilia who was madly in love with him. And he, and he had some grounds for believing that Brutus, who was born at about the time when her passion was in a full blaze, was his own son. Yeah. I'm, I'm, that's Plutarch. I know that's Plutarch, but the thing, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just, yeah. All right. I just, I, that's prob- just probably not true. They probably weren't having an affair at that time. Basically, this doesn't. This nobody, 
nobody really mentions this in this, like in any surviving letters or, or or writings until like after her second husband dies, I think. And that's what's like that's years after Brutus was born. But you know what? It's not. Hey, it's not impossible. So yeah, if it, it, it's cooler to believe that's true than believe that's true. I'm just saying. I don't think I, I would. I would never say this is a fact. This is a thing that happened for sure. Yeah, I, I love Plutarch. I'm gonna read one other thing about him. <clears throat> so he was. And this is this is about Antony. So he was taken in the kitchen where he admired the prodigious variety of all things, but particularly seeing eight wild boars roasted whole. Says he, surely you have a great number of guests. The cook laughed at his, at his simplicity and told him there were not, a, not above 12 to sup, but that every dish was to be served, served up just roasted to a turn. And if anything but was, was but one minute ill-timed, it was spoiled. And, said he, maybe Antony will sup just now, maybe not, not this hour, maybe he will call for wine or beginning to talk and will put it off. So that he continued, it is not one, but many sumpers must be had in readiness. It is as impossible to guess the hour. Now, Plutarch's like great uncle or something like that was uh, worked in, in the service of uh, Antony, I believe. But let, let's uh, here. Here's some like here's one thing we talked about this before. But there are stories that it's not really important that things that aren't literally true are more true than just the facts. I mean, this is, this is the, 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 the reason why I tell people read Rex Warner, like Rex Warner understands Caesar and he, and like you get so much more of understanding about Caesar reading Rex Warner's translation than you do people who just translate word for word. This is like the story of, of George Washington cutting down the apple tree. Is that literally true? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that, 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 like I agree with this a hundred percent. Like, if you were going to ask somebody, hey, can you, what what was the one book I can read to, to understand, like, Romans or whatever? You know, obviously you could say his commentaries, or you could say, like, Ovid's book, Metamorphoses. It, all of that stuff is, everything in that book is, like, it's it's mythology, it's, it's stories. Some of them he just, like, he just took figures and maybe there were, like, these, these were based on, oratory tales that passed down, but he might have just made some of the stuff up. But that's it doesn't matter. Far. That's too far. No, so it's we, not. No, it's not too far because you're when you when you read when you read that you understand how the mind of, of a Latin person worked when he wrote that. You understand like it's one thing to read about like these mythological figures, and it's like this. They believe this. And they they worship this cult. And they gave this many, you know fatted lambs to 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 the gods on this day so what that doesn't tell you anything about them when you read about like you know, this is this is the uh, tragic love story between these two you uh, you start to understand something about them like this is the this is like one of the legitimate uses no, of power that's, yes, that's yes. Still too far okay so no it's not it is absolutely not too far okay so you could learn okay so that could be true about say the George Washington and and the apple tree. So you could say, well, you could learn a lot about what these early Americans thought made a good leader or something, right? Which would be the, that's the point of what you're saying. Yes. Yes. The honesty was one of these 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 big things, which which is funny in a story that's probably not true. But anyways, uh, so but look, let's look at the hard facts of the map. So the hard facts is this man Julius Caesar 
if if he had eloped with if if he had basically completed a marriage with with Cleopatra, who is also a very real person, they would have been like uh king and queen of the world. That's a that's just a fact. And that was very close to happening. Yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, no, 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 uh, no, like, um, no, no extra sparkle on the story. Just that, just like, uh, those people that was close to happening. Yes. No, I don't think that was close to happening. I don't think Caesar had any intention of, of marrying her or making, I think Cleopatra did. Oh, well, I'm sure she did. (laughs) I mean, that would be a real glow up to go from being a vassal queen. Many such cases. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. By but the yeah, way, I get what by, you're saying. By the way, if we're talking and also going to England, I mean, people thought that was bullshit for a long time, uh, and it turned out not to be. Um, uh, furthermore, uh, oh yeah, in terms of real, like real talk stuff. So you know, the thing, the the I take Plutarch's side that Caesar was probably Brutus's father. However, like, there's a real talk, like, uh, there's a like a uh uh a fact that like I usually don't include because it kind of messes up the the poetry of the situation but like uh Anthony probably had sex with with Cleopatra first how dare you nobody ever like that ruins a lot of stuff but basically uh Anthony was sent with a deputation to Egypt long before Caesar ever arrived and it's very likely that they had sex then. How dare you besmirch him the day after his his an- death anniversary? You kill you're, you're assassinating his character all over again. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> all right. I have a more important I have a more important relevant Caesar story. So my nephew uh, is six years old. During COVID times, I used to read him. Uh, you know, the diaries, the war diaries. He took a shining to it. Like I had to explain various parts of it to him. So my sister signs him up for like an after school sports camp. And the instructor, I guess, is Latino because his name is Cesar, right? <laughs> so my nephew goes up to him and he's like, Hey, do you know this other guy named Caesar that used to be around? Like it just like starts start up a conversation with him. So the guy's like, yeah, kid, whatever. But the, the kicker is like, he goes to the guy and he goes, when you're playing a sport or something and you get really mad at your opponent, do you ever imagine to yourself that he's Pompey? <laughs> <laughs> that's based. That's, that's such a good story. I mean, I like, I feel like if I, if I was taught about, Caesar the way that like I think he should be taught I probably would have joined the military and been like a <laughs> jingoistic war guy uh and I don't think I'm not saying like I, okay I'm just going over the top whatever but like I really wish I had been taught that, like I think first off Caesar is in the words of who's the older conservative historian war historian western way of war what else Calif- California farmer. Oh, uh, Vic, uh, Victor, uh, Victor, David Hansen. Hansen. Yeah. Thank you. Victor yeah. Davis Hansen, who is like, um, I don't think he would be like ideologically aligned with, uh, with Caesar, which by the way, Plutarch wasn't either. 
Well, and the thing Plutarch really nailed because Plutarch, he says, like, I'm going to tell you the story about this man named Caesar because you you will become a better person by learning about this man and his and his love of honor and duty. And this is an example you can learn, learn from the same token Plutarch at the beginning of the story, he's talking about Caesar's rise. And he says, uh, damn Cicero should have killed him here. We wouldn't have, we, <laughs> the Republic wouldn't have fallen if he killed him here. You know what I mean? Like he didn't agree with him politically, but he said like, I am sorry. You just have to know about this man. Victor Davis Hanson said, Julius Caesar is the most complete man the West ever produced. And he's right. He's, he's number one. He's the best that we've ever come up with. And, uh, I do think children should be taught about him. I mean, now of course there is a lot of right place, right time. However, that doesn't, there's a lot of people that were in that, that place in the right time and they didn't have it. And Caesar had it. He's the greatest general in Western history. The question that, you know, the, the question there is like, well, and you know, Napoleon can go up there, but you know, the, why is Caesar such a great general? Why? Well, because he fought Roman legions with Roman legions. And so, you know, we, we don't, it's not like he, he killed a bunch of people that, that did not have, uh, like what he had. Oh, he, they had, I mean, he fought Roman legions and he did very well. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, he fought, you could argue, well, you, you wouldn't even be an argument at the time. Possibly the two best military commanders Rome had produced are against each other in the Civil War. Like, Pompey did a lot of stuff. Man, I, I, people, some people say that maybe he wasn't, like, a tactical genius, but it was, like, an organizational thing for him. But that's still a big part of war. Oh. Like, he was fighting as Pompey in, the, in most of the Senate. That's a... a, a, a that's... I don't want to get, like, too heretical here, but, you know, you can make the argument that what he did in Gaul and then in the Civil Wars was... A bigger accomplishment than what Alexander did, oh, basically rolling o- rolling over a decrepit empire of people who just were not up to the same military standards as as, as his. Like with, with Alexander, the thing is, and I think I bet you, see, you know, Caesar idolized him, and there's a there's a reason for that. Is that yeah, he had advantages. His dad, you know, he, he got he inherited this military machine from his daddy that was like well oiled and was mo- the most powerful military in the world, but he pretty much, he went he went undefeated against against the Persian Empire, and you just took over a, a quarter of the, or maybe half of the known world without losing a battle. Oh yeah, I, I, that's kind of like a like the the Joe Dimaggi the the, uh, the the streak right like there's a good chance that's the hitting streak there's, there's a good chance nobody's ever going to do anything like that again. It's just, it's just it's just so many things had to come together. Yeah, well, I mean, so if if Pompey, like the only reason Pompey is number two is that he loses to Caesar because Pompey's overall record, you know, it may be better than Caesar's. Like all the conquests and like very difficult wars that Pompey fought. Right, Pompey fought a lot in the East, and yeah, the you know, I mean, the Gaul. Not no offense to any of our our French uh, our French listeners, but uh, the Gauls weren't exactly, you know, the part the. the <laughs> Like the Parthians or whatever, right? They're not. They're not the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And so Pompey's like uh, on paper. On paper, W's are is are as big as um are 
as big or more or bigger than Caesar's. However, he loses to Caesar. So all that matters is who wins that. It's like the Super Bowl, right? It it's don't about, matter. You can go undefeated during the season. If you lose that last game, it doesn't matter. It's about who wants it the most. <laughs> that's funny because isn't that it, uh, that's what Caesar said right before Forsalas, right? When the, they had that, uh, I can't remember the name of the siege where Pompey had him hemmed in and. He could have destroyed his army, but he didn't. After the battle, Caesar just says, "You know, if if their if their general was a winner, they would have won." <laughs> yeah. It's just it was a skill issue. <laughs> yeah, well, Caesar is. I mean, he's just the the perfect uh, general in every way. All this, the he never wastes troops. Uh, the whole Caesar's forgiveness thing is basically like that's like there's been very few people that have won as the empire versus gorilla versus gorillas. And that's how you do it. Although he's something in the middle of it, the middle of that, there was a great French general under, under Napoleon. Now Napoleon's in the conversation, but he's not, he's not Caesar. I mean, Napoleon was a bad, bad dude. Let's, I'm going to check in with our, with the, our resident med here. And I'm going to propose a question. I think I know the answer already, but I've heard different people have different answers for this. Fredo, who do, who do you like better, Caesar or Augustus? Caesar, Caesar, of course. I just look, I mean, I look like Augustus, but uh, <laughs> that's why I use the, uh, the Yeah, profile. that's what I was thinking. I'm sitting here looking at that the whole time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, Julius Caesar. I mean, but I mean, if you want to look like one of the two of them, I think you'd rather look like Augustus. Yeah, okay, so by the way, okay, so talking about, um, uh, so like the other reason why he had to die was that August the thing that like Augustus okay so the problem for people like Brutus and Cassius was that Rome was built on a model of basically honor distinction war amongst the elites so if you're an elite life is a game to get the most money distinction and, and honor possible and it kind of ties into like ancestor worship and stuff so that uh, that'll be a big W for your family. And then th that, that increases the power of your little family, like outside of the country or whatever. So the, you know, the uh, team Caesar or whatever gets boosted up throughout the years, et cetera. So <clears throat> uh, the problem with Caesar is the, the Rome had to become an empire. It was getting too big to have this uh, oligarchy. And so what happened? The problem with it is that you, when you just go from oligarchy to empire overnight, it'd be like if tomorrow, if we, if we, and this has been <laughs> floated, what if we got rid of all uh, tenure positions in the United States tomorrow? Someone just signed the law and there were no more tenured positions. <laughs> what would happen would be, there would be a generation of people that would not accept this. They would join Antifa they would raise unholy hell. There'd be a generation of people that would just be like, I can't, no, no, we're not doing this. This is like, this is our life. This is, and this is like, even more, this is like the, the whole honor and distinction thing. This is, I made it to the top of my, my thing, or, or I'm a, even I'm a promising student. You're saying I can't become a professor. What am I supposed to do? I, like, I'm going to have to like come up with a new plan for my life and stuff fuck that or sorry f that we're not going to do that 
Well, that's what happened. And so these people were like, what do you mean there's like one guy? Um, I wanted to become a senator. I want to get some power and stuff. But like all like there's no point because it's already Caesar there. What am I going to do? I guess I'm going to just I I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, this is one of the reasons why I liked Parenti's book about Caesar, because he kind of he kind of he leans into this a little bit. You know, he's got his own biases that are pretty. You can look at the cover of the book and figure out what they are. But he makes a good point in this that like Caesar's plan with the optimates wasn't that I'm going to replace you. It was it was kind of I don't want to say reformist, but it was more like we're going to share power in some way. Would you agree? Yeah, but you know, I like yes, he tried like the the, it, the problem is it's there's there's it's like there is no real way to have something in between one and many. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. The thing so this was something they absolutely refused. They refused to go along with. They refused. The Senate refuses to compromise. And even after they lost the Civil War, he let them back into the government. He forgave, you know, forgave them. That was part of his. That was part of his deal. And you know, they they sta- they literally stabbed him in the back. Augustus comes along and he just kills them all. He just he just he just goes on a rampage and murders not just people who were involved in the assassination but just political enemies he kills them he takes their stuff he builds the absolute monarchy that they claim that they were afraid that caesar was creating and he completely neuters their political power he he does the thing that they accuse caesar of wanting to do and that, that's kind that's kind of ironic parenti says that they because he's you know Marxist whatever he says they were fine with this because Augustus didn't touch their wealth, and whereas Caesar had land reforms that would have cost them money, Augustus was mainly I'm taking away your political power around letting you keep your money and you can go in the Senate and LARP and pretend like that you're you're still you still have power but you don't and they were fine with that arrangement. I don't believe that. I don't think that men are ever satisfied with losing status and keeping and even if it means they get to keep wealth i don't think that's true i think that what happened was augustus did what, he, what exactly was advertised he killed enough people and and consolidated power to the point where you couldn't you couldn't rise up against them and parenti makes the point that you know in the in the in the long history of rome afterwards you know what caesar dies in 45 bc 55 something, something around there right so, right Somewhere around, yeah, yeah, yeah. From all that time until the fall of the Roman Empire, nobody really tries to bring back the Republic. There are people who want to replace the emperor with another emperor, who want to become emperor, who might want to break away and form their own their own kingdoms from from parts of the empire. But nobody says we need to bring back the Republic. That's just not an idea anymore. And, and this is you know. The Cassus belly to murder Caesar as he's imperiling the Republic. But nobody really gave a shit about the Republic. And I think that is for the exact reason you lined out and uh, you laid out initially. It was impossible to have a Republic that spanned half of the world at that time. I mean, not just at that time. It would be impossible today, really. You just can't do it. So, it, yeah, the Empire was coming no matter what. 
they chose to that they chose to kill the nicer guy, and you know they 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 refused the carrot, so they got the stick. Right, and so uh, what Augustus is Augustus is like um remember those guys that would have you know, there'd be these corporate raider CEOs in the eighties and nineties, yeah, and stuff? yeah, yeah, Carl Icahn, yeah, right, because what had like first off. The, the Republic was done. First off, Republic is just like a worse way to, to run something than an empire, than, than, than a singular source. But the other thing was these guys, they couldn't like, like being a senator of little Rome, they, you know, once you're in the empire and you could see like what, like, it's not, it's not like a horrible deal to be a governor over, over a province. In fact, it could be more lucrative than being a senator ever was. And so they just had to have, you had to have, uh, there was going to be blood. There was going to be guts. Cause like, let's say, let's say going back to professor thing, it's possible that whatever arrangements came after the tenure system, <laughs> it's possible that it could be just as good. I mean, yes, but here's the thing. And this goes back to what I said earlier about, about status. And throw in the obligatory your uh, Lord Yarvin reference for the night. His one like in in his earlier works, he says, "What we can do is we can you know, pay off all these tenure professors, give them retirement money, and say, okay, you you know your job is over, but here's a, a stipend or whatever, and that they'll go along with this, and they won't." And they, they wouldn't you if you gave if you gave someone I, I'm going to make you quit your job uh, I'm eliminate your job as a tenured uh, professor and I'm going to pay you your exact salary plus one dollar you know a lot of these people wouldn't take that because guess what being being that being a tenured professor being you know whatever an ESG executive that's status that makes you important and people care a lot about that. And that, and that, that's. I think this is kind of what tor what torpedoes Parenti's thesis in the end is that the thing you want to do here is like, well, oh, he's only thinking about material, uh, you know, material things, but that's not true. Status is really, uh, maybe it's not technically material, but it is a thing that's, if not like physical, it's ta it's ta it's as tangible as as material wealth. You know, does, does that make sense? What I'm, oh, what I'm trying to say. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these professors, like a lot of these professors, would would jump out of a window if you gave them twice as much money, but they weren't in that. But they were just sitting at home. They weren't, by the way, around a lot of young girls, which uh, stuff like that. Um, well, the, here's a good here's a good question to add to. If, if, am I telling the truth or am I not? Uh, I'm, I'm making I'm making a job offer. You can either take a hundred thousand dollars and you're job is going to be you're a janitor but like your job title is a, uh, assistant executive vice president or i'll pay you a hundred and ten thousand dollars a year and your job is going to your job is going to be like i don't know what's anything easier than a janitor you know whatever you can be firewatch you can just sit in a room and read novels all day long but your title is janitor there are a lot of people who are going to say, "I'll I'll take the be I'll take the better title and, you know, <laughs> be somebody in society, even yeah. if it means I'm going to make a little bit less money." Usually, you have to have your own thing, right? So, like, I worked at a job once, and there was a guy there that like really had no care at all about 
office politics or or like moving up the ladder at all. And it was like he had a band. And like so just, yeah. As soon as he checked out, as soon as, as soon as work is over at five PM, he ain't doing no more work. He don't give a shit. Uh he's got his band. And that's what a lot of people uh these uh a lot of this stuff happens like that. But yeah, and so uh yeah, I agree with you. And the this is a good point to make now because like literally we're at a hard break in the United States. Like we've had this thing that the the federal police, the secret police, the Stasi, the KGB, the the FBI uh of and I I don't mean the actual KGB, I mean ours. Um, you know, going like going, there's movies like the good shepherd and the good shepherd is like, well, the F people in the FBI is like, well, this is our country. It's just how it is. Well, it's obvious that like, you can look at what's happened with the president with, with, uh, with, with Trump or whatever. There's, it's basically like he's going to get in and he's going to either have to reorganize the secret police or they're going to keep him out of office. Like there's just no other way to do it. And like you're saying, I don't think there's a way to say this, this goes because, you know, going back to the thing, being a governor of a Roman colony, which stretched farther than they could have ever realized at that point. I mean, they were colonized. Like you saw those places that ISIS blew up. I mean, that was in Palmyra. That's all the way in Syria that happened like 200 years later. Uh, these guys couldn't see that stuff. They couldn't see they were going to conquer uh, Britain. Um, but the thing is, like, a bird in the hand is worth $10 million in the bush. Tell people, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great in the future. Uh, you know, being an FBI agent, more than likely, it's not going to change a ton if it gets reorganized. However, like that thing, it's like, well, you're not going to be in charge anymore. That's, that's, that's life or death. They'll do anything to stop the secret police from being reorganized. And it doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means it's going to be rough. Agreed? Yeah, it mean, it mean, well, it means it's going to be rough and it means it's going to take a special kind of guy to be able to do it. It means that like wanting to do it is not enough. You got to be willing to do some grimy stuff to get it done, if that makes sense. Yeah. And famously, like eventually they killed Caesar, but Caesar got all the like, Caesar kicked down the door. Caesar really was the Carl icon. And he did that by, by being such a diplomat. He did the forgiveness guy. I want, let's make a deal. I want to make you happy. Let's make a deal. We, we got to come to terms here. We have to. And of course, eventually there was no coming to terms. There was like, well, actually Caesar, we don't like these terms because Caesar would say, look, look, you know, Brutus, whatever you want, whatever you want, let's, let's just, I, I, but the, the problem is, you know, there is no, what we really want is you to be dead and us to have the oligarchy back. And that's what you can't have. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, hey, maybe. we Today we live in an oligarchy. And it, uh, it, was, yes. it was perhaps up until very recently, or maybe still, you know, it was the, the Rome of, of the modern era. It was uh, from, from at least 90 until, I don't know, the mid-2000s. It was the hyperpower. It was yeah. It was the the not only the biggest boy on the block, but really the only boy on the block. The are the limits of our ability to influence countries was 
is probably as close to unlimited as ever been in human history. Like, yeah, we couldn't invade China in a ground war, but you know, we could we could isolate a country this uh, country the size of the Soviet Union and grind it down. And you know, up up until we decided to outsource all of our manufacturing to China, we had them pretty well isolated too. But it is it is so obvious that it is an oligarchy, and I think that recent events, like actually very recent events, the last few days, makes it clear to anybody who didn't already know. And I don't. I'm not sure who that like. Does anybody who doesn't know that like bank uh, the finance runs our country? The bank, like, a lot of times they'll say the banks run our country, but I don't think they really know what that means. Like the, the the engine the engine of this country is not war. Well, it is war, but it's it's also finance. Any anybody disagree with that? I no. don't know. By the way, Cornish Jack says crazy to think how powerful U.S. was in the nineties and two thousand. We blew our load on Afghanistan, and Iraq. Well, that's what Caesar was going to be doing. So I continue. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of the that's the moment where you Caesar was a was a was a gambler, right? I mean, his most famous quote is, "All right, here we go. Seven come eleven. Daddy's a new pair of shoes, right?" When he crosses the Rubicon, he's he's throwing he's rolling a dice. This could go either way. Eventually, if you keep if you keep rolling the dice, you're going to lose, and that's what we did in that's what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. We kept rolling the dice, and eventually, we got snake eyes. Yeah. Well, by the way, I don't think Caesar was a gambler. I think uh, he was a, in gambling. There's a term called a nit, which is somebody that basically um, uh, never, <laughs> it never. And Caesar, I don't think he was a gambler. Like literally, the thing of like always trying to negotiate. The second that he thought the battle, like he could negotiate and into a battle he would be like oh, let's uh, i'll let you leave with your weapons or whatever but i want to and what he would say like caesar the, i we did an episode on this uh yeah but caesar basically he said that like the problem the thing with battle is that like any small like you're always gambling like, there's a chance at any moment right. that no matter how good you have things you could just lose and so you should always try to minimize that i, I know like in the vernacular, gambler can be like a synonym of reckless, right? Yeah, people just use it to mean the same thing, but that's not what I mean. I didn't mean Caesar was. Reckless. I know what you mean. You're, you mean he's he's um he's not trying to uh, make middle management. He's a, he's looking to double up. He wants to go all the way. It, it, it's either it, yeah, it's either I'm I'm going to be the top guy. Or I'm going to be dead. And he's he, he, that's a common theme. You know, there's the, a the great story where he's captured by the pirates and he tells them, "I'm going to have you all executed." And then he he make he, he makes his ransom and he comes back and he does it you know that's a, that's a, a badass thing to say most people wouldn't say that because you got to be like that's a gamble those guys could just cut his throat and the story of Caesar's ended uh, yeah crossing the Rubicon was was a was a dangerous gamble no matter no matter whether you think he didn't have a choice or not that was still a big move most people uh, most people in his position probably wouldn't have made it. Yeah, but by the way, I mean, I sort of what you're saying, but that thing where he, I think we did an episode on this too. Mm, Caesar's uh, fortune, yeah. Uh, that when he told them, uh, "I'm going to come back and kill you," he did that because he knew that they couldn't. He knew that like he was cash money to them, and so like the second he knew that he had the power in that situation, he's like, "Oh, wait a minute, these guys can't do shit to me. I'm like the only like I'm a big cash money." 
And well, there's, whenever you're dealing with somebody from this time period, there's also the possibility that he legitimately believed that he had protection from like divine sources. Yeah, but I don't. I mean, I really don't think C- Caesar was not like that. Caesar wanted to go all the way. But uh, now, of course, there was like a, a classic story like this. Um, and I'll read it here. Uh, let's see. And then we'll, let's, let's move on after this. He, in the meantime, was posted in Apollonia. Apollonia. <laughs> but he but had not an army with him to fight the enemy. The forces from Brundusium so long in coming, which put him in great suspense and embarrassment what to do. At last he resolved among, upon a most hazardous experiment and embarked, without anyone's knowledge, in a boat of 12 oars to cross over to Brundusium through, though the sea was at that time covered with a vast fleet of the enemies. He got on board in the nighttime in the dress of a slave and throwing, down, and throwing himself down like a person of no consequences lay along the bottom of a vessel. Now, at this point, like he's getting beat in the war. The river Aeneas was to carry them down to the sea, and there, was, there used to blow a gentle gale every morning from the land, which made it calm at the mouth of the river by driving the waves forward. But this night there had blown a strong wind from the sea, which overpowered that from the land, so that where the river met the influx of the seawater and the opposition of the waves, it was extremely rough and angry. And the current was beaten back with such a violent swell that the master of the boat could not make good his passage. But ordered his slaves, but ordered his sailors to tack about and return. So Caesar is literally uh, on the run. He's like on his own. He's trying to make some time. Caesar, upon this, discovers himself and taking the man by the hand, who was surprised to see him there, said, "Go on, my friend, and fear nothing. You carry Caesar and his fortune in your boat." <laughs> the mariners, when they heard that, forgot the storm, laying all the strength to their oars. And this. My copy ends here, but I know what happens. Um, Caesar's like, I have fortune smiles upon me, so let's go. And they're like, okay, sure. And they go, and they make it like a couple hundred yards, and the guy's like, uh, okay, this isn't working. Caesar's like, okay, yeah, turn around. <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and yeah, I know you're Mr. Cynical, but I, I, you know, I don't know, because you take someone like George Washington, who's our our, 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 our closest thing that we had to Caesar, our national hero. And he's writing, he wrote personal letters and they got published later, as, as often happened after he died. And he's writing to one of his friends and they were just talking about, like, here's all the things that happened in the war. Like, there's one point where they were, uh, when, when they were evacuating, I think it was, was it Brooklyn Heights, whatever, they, when they're evacuating uh, <laughs> New York, they're surrounded by the, British Army and they, the Royal Navy is closing in on them, and they have to do the secret, you know, secret night retreat, and it, 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 they take too long. They don't go on schedule, and daylight's approaching before the entire army's across. It's going to be a disaster. Like he's going to lose half of his army, and it's just heavy fog rolls in, and the British can't see anything until every single last American made it across the river. Safety and there's all these moments that happen in the Revolutionary War that are like that. And George Washington's writing to his friend. He's like, "How do we do this?" And George Washington, divine providence, like literally, it was it was the hand of God. So I I think these people did. I think they did believe this. I really do. I, I, and, and you know, you can't you can't speculate on the mind of a person, but it's not out of the order. It's not impossible that Alexander and Caesar really believed that they had 
like you know, the blood of the gods in them. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have uh, a good deal of it. I think people generally will have like a. Um, there's literally no difference. Like when you approach a woman, when you approach a woman, <laughs> the back, you know, in the back of your mind's like, well, you know, um, I got the hot hand. Fortune is. You're literally thinking the same thing. It's like fortune is going to smile on me this day. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm going to be. I'm. I'm good. Like that's the only mindset you got to have. That's the mindset you got to have. By the way, in war, that's especially. A, a, like an especially good strategy, especially in a low information environment is to be super confident, but then double back as soon as you get resistance. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, well, actually, actually, I think being attack. Yes. Yeah. Th- it's, it's not really a bad way to go, but I don't know. <laughs> don't use that as dating advice. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're not. Well, Fred is a lawyer, but he didn't say that. So don't, well, don't take that as legal advice. That is the honestly, that is excellent dating advice. Like <laughs> what you literally should do is like, you know, you just go for the kiss or whatever. But like as soon as you get any resistance, whatever you're like, literally your only move, like the only way you could actually this happened before we talked about the show. Um, I went to kiss a girl. It's been a long time. Uh, this, this one instance and, um, <laughs> she got mad at me and shit like that. And it, it didn't go, it didn't go down. And so I was like, um, so I just totally backed off. I was like, oh, okay, uh, fine. And I just like tried to leave or whatever. And then that's, that was the, that's the only move. It's the only move is to be super aggressive, but then, uh, back off as soon as you get resistance. As I recall that story, and she got mad that you backed off. Like, I guess the the real move is you're supposed to commit a felony if yeah. if you're told that there, there's some some people are like that. It's this, and uh, we'll get off this subject very quickly. Well, there was a, a, a meme going around lately because someone was posting this study that said that p- people with 130 IQ uh, or teenagers with 100, or sorry, young people with 130 IQ were less likely to be sexually active than someone with 80 IQ. <laughs> and, like that's kind of a that kind of a thing of being of, of uh, being too much in your head, right? Like you you are supposed to just assume that she's interested in you, and and and, and act that way. Like you need to believe that yourself. Like that's the that is the essence of confidence, right? Like oh, you can't really be you can't you can't you you can't um cross the Rubicon half heartedly. You you've got to be going full full bore, even if even if it's a hopeless cause. Yeah, I couldn't do it until I had I had to get a couple of drinks in me, and <laughs> somebody was like teaching me, and they're like, "Look, you just have to just walk up there and just and like it is terrifying." First time you do it, what happens is the first time you do it, you're like, "Oh, that wasn't that bad." And like what what I was told, I was like, I went out with an older friend, and he was like, "Uh, he said, here's your goal. Like, you need to go get turned down by like four women tonight. Like, you're not trying to you're not trying to actually get their number. You need four to turn you down. It was basically like you have to like realize this doesn't. It's not that big of a deal for them to uh." Say F Remember off. in the movie Fight Club where he's like, okay, he tells all the people at the club, your your homework for this week is you need to get in a fight with a stranger and lose. I haven't seen that movie, by the way. Hmm. Fre- uh, I was like, Fredo, do you have any dating advice to share with the audience? Nope. And that's that's good because, like, 
I, I, I don't want to hear Fredo's dating advice because it would be like, yeah, you should just be like a lawyer slash accountant slash bodybuilder. Well, be really smart. That, that, that's, that's like, that's the key to attracting <laughs> women. I, I always hesitate because I mean, I don't know. I guess that's part of it, but like, I don't know. I don't think, I think I just kind of stumbled into it and got lucky. Like, I don't think I did anything in particular correctly. You know what I mean? Make it look easy. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Fredo, I hope you know a lot about this bank thing. Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, so, I mean, we got a, there's been a series of them, right? So we got to start in a row uh, over the past, I don't know if it's been about 10 days now. We've seen it went Silvergate Bank, Signature Bank, SVB, uh, and then we had a couple non-failures with Credit Suisse and First Republic. So it's it's important to think about these kind of in a row because there's one theme that runs throughout them, but they all are different from one another. So the the first one of these to go under was uh, uh, Silvergate Bank. So for people that aren't as familiar with Silvergate, it's not a household name as banks go. The reason for that is they, they were a niche bank in San Diego. Most of what they did was bank the cryptocurrency industry, which was really critical because a, a lot of um, a lot of banks didn't want to deal with businesses in that line of work. And also Silvergate had its own proprietary network called SEN, the Silvergate Exchange Network, that was a way for basically exchanges and other businesses in the cryptocurrency industry to instantly transact in dollars, uh, you know, to settle their trades with each other, things of that nature. So it was kind of, it was almost a necessity that you had to use Silvergate at one point. So Silvergate was sort of the first one to go under, you know, in certain way, the least controversial they just didn't do a good job managing their liquidity and investments. I mean, there isn't much more to it than that with those guys. They voluntarily announced, basically, we're going to have to wind up the bank. Uh, they effectively had said all along, all the depositors were all going to get their money back. Like They weren't going to be able to continue to operate anymore, but there was not a situation there where it looked like anybody that had you know, money in accounts at Silvergate was going to lose their money. So in a lot of ways, this was sort of like the least controversial. Where it gets starts to get interesting is uh, Signature Bank, which happened after that. So Signature was the number two player uh, in banking cryptocurrency companies, and it was shut down almost right after Silvergate. The reason this is interesting is the people at Signature, including Barney Frank, and yet yeah, is that Barney Frank, the U.S. senator who, with uh, nipples protruding? Correct, with nipples protruding. Uh, Barney Frank was on the board of directors at Signature Bank, and he made very public statements that Signature Bank wasn't in any trouble at all. Uh, it was just that the you know they had some tough times, but there was no real risk of failure, that they were shut down because basically the feds were, I mean, they were technically shut down by the New York State Department of Banking, but the... Theory is here that it was under pressure from the feds. Um, you know, the feds took the Silvergate failure as an opportunity to just try and sell a narrative that anyone that was banking cryptocurrency companies that was dangerous and just sort of jumped at the opportunity to use the Silvergate thing as cover to shut down Signature Bank. 
Whether or not that's true, we're never going to know. Or maybe we will eventually know one way or the other. All we have right now is, you know, Barney Frank and a few other people at the bank, you know, making those statements publicly. Presumably, I mean, that's quite an accusation to levy. So it tends to lead me to believe there's some credence to that theory, right? So that was sort of number two in the, the dominoes falling. The third and most interesting one that happened in a row was Silicon Valley Bank. So Silicon Valley Bank, uh, really unique bank with a really unique business model. So Silicon Valley Bank, basically the way they operated was if you were a tech company and you closed a successful venture capital round with a well-known you know, venture capital firm, they would come along and they would offer you this thing called venture debt. And it would be like, I don't know, 20 or 30% of whatever you just raised in venture capital. But like, we'll cut you that amount as a loan. Uh, we'll give you a good interest rate. It'll give you a little more breathing room and flexibility. All we ask in return is you do all your banking with us. In other words, all this cash that you just got in your VC raise, you move that stuff over to our bank. Uh, you know, et, et cetera. You get the idea. Your operating account, all that sort of stuff. So they would get a lot of really large deposits because of this. Um, that sounds highly speculative. Well, it is right. the the I, The way their model worked was like, yeah, making these loans to these sort of companies is risky. Uh, they thought it was worth it because it increased their deposit base by so much, right? Because they could use that as leverage. To get those uh, those type of tech companies. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, I'm 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 dumb about finance. I don't know anything. What Silicon Valley Bank did? Could you do that before Glass Steagall was repealed? Yeah, so we're gonna get to that. That's actually what's kind of interesting about this. Let me talk about what made them fail first, sure. uh, because that's where it kind of it it does get interesting. So the reason that Silicon Valley bank failed is they get all these giant deposits, right? Uh, because of this relationship. The other thing they did, by the way, is they would go to the founders directly and they would say, Hey, like, you know, ah, you're in this speculative thing. Maybe it's kind of tough for you to get a mortgage. We'll write your mortgage too. You just got to move all your personal deposits over to us as well. So they would do all this stuff. They got all these deposits and you're going to you're going to laugh at what they did with the money. Does either of you want to take a guess? If you read it in the news already, don't don't say. I but. read it in the news already. All right, Bog Beef, you want to take a guess or did you see it as well? Uh, I have no idea. Take a guess. They did they did the most boring thing in the world with it. They bought US Treasury securities. <laughs> uh yeah, like cuz the rates never go up, so it's it's a it's a slam dunk, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like their whole <laughs> model was like we're just going to take all these giant deposits we get and we're just going to like invest them in, you know, treasury bonds that pay one and a half percent. And we earn the interest on these giant deposits and that's our business model. Well, the problem with that is like, if you're doing that, you're, you're, you're making, they didn't make like they bought like longer term stuff on the assumption that like interest rates were just never going to go up, that we were in a, an era of perpetual, uh, uh low interest rates. This was never going to happen. Well, what happened was, Interest rates go up, right? Uh, what happens with a treasury bond is like any other bond. If interest rates go up, uh, the value that you can sell that bond on the market for goes down, right? Because if I can go get uh, a bond now that pays twice as much interest, why am I going to pay you know, face value for your bond? 
You know what I mean? That's that's just that's not going to happen. So SVB realizes like, hey, you know, we got a little bit of an issue going on here because our bond portfolio has just drastically reduced in value. We got to do something about this. So what do they do? They announce that they're going to do a capital raise. Yeah, which in the under the circumstances, like putting aside whatever you think of their business model, under the circumstances, that was sort of a irrational thing to do, right? But they did a poor job of communicating why they were doing it and what was going on. So people uh, got scared, right? Exactly. People got scared. They started withdrawing their money from the bank. So that means they have to start selling their treasuries, right? Like, because they have to be able to pay their depositors back the cash that they're withdrawing. So they got to start selling all these treasuries at a discount because they bought such low interest rate treasuries. Uh, And, you know, this, you could see how this would be a death spiral, right? They quickly became insolvent and they could no longer meet their, uh, you know, their deposit demands. So what was interesting about this, uh, you know, is they have, they weren't actually engaging in like overly sophisticated, uh, you know, like financial engineering. They were just, they were doing something very stupid, but they were, you know, they were buying the, what would be considered the most like conservative investment a bank could make. Even under Glass-Steagall, you were allowed to do that. Uh, you, you know, you were allowed to buy treasuries. So that's what's so odd, like about the Silicon Valley bank, bank thing. It was just like big time, you know, major stupidity in the way that it happened. The reason Silicon Valley bank is so like, uh, particularly bad for them to go under is because of the type of, you know, the business model that I just explained like almost none of their deposits were FDIC insured because, you know, like they were taking deposits for love, like large and large amounts of money. They weren't just like banking people with like $20,000 checking accounts. Right. So roughly only 3% of their deposits were FDIC insured. The other 97% weren't. So in the wake of the SVB thing, you know, the issue there was like all these tech companies were going to be in big, big trouble. So, you know, based on what I just told you there, like I, I, I want to get your both initial reactions. The t- <laughs> the type of clientele that they were dealing with, the type of people that were going to lose their money, the stupidity that was involved. Like, do you think that the government should step in and cover the deposits for uh, you know depositors who were above the FDIC insurance limit? Now, keep in mind these were sophisticated people, so they knew. They understood they were above the FDIC insurance limit. This is funny because uh, my initial reaction when I saw the story was like, fuck those guys. This is ridiculous. Why, why is taxpayer money going to be used? That? And then I saw that Patreon was on the list of companies that did business with SVB. And then I was like, mm, okay, well, now now I have a personal, personal reason to give a crap about this. I, I don't I don't know. I, I kind of wanted to ask you this because it, to me it's a tough question because – for for one thing, in 2020, like a lo- I think a lot of this goes back to the pandemic. Uh, Silicon Valley got fat as a tick off of the lockdown. There's a, sh- a, a, sh- a shitload of money. I believe SVB's deposits went up an insane amount just in that like the period of 2020 to 2021. So it's kind of like these people just made so much money off of like literally human suffering that you 
would enjoy what like you'd enjoy watching all their stupid ass like uh you know like, like uber and stuff like that going instacart <laughs> not being able to pay not being able to pay their bills and like maybe have to file bankruptcy like that would feel good uh from a schadenfreude of schadenfreude or whatever perspective on the other hand i don't i i don't know if that's <laughs> really be the way to go because I, I don't know what the secondary effects would be to, the, to like the rest of the country and the economy. I, it, it really depends on what, like how they chose to do it because from what you're laying out to me, and again, I'm a stupid finance person. I don't know. I don't, I don't know anything about finance. You, this is a, what they call a liquidity problem, meaning that you could in theory give them a loan that they could pay back later on with interest and solve this solve this problem without collapsing the bank is that true uh we're going to get to that the answer to that <laughs> is yes it depends it depends on the terms of the loan we're going to get to that in a minute but before we do i just wanted the initial reaction on whether the depositors should be protected cuz what's not happening is SVB is not going to continue operating. They are going to get wound down. But the first part, the government did a few different things here. The first part is that all of the uninsured deposits are going to end up being insured, which is not for not for you and me. Like if we have any uh, uh, uninsured deposits, we're not getting coverage. Just customers of SVB, basically, in this case. Hmm. So. Or- Hmm. I, I, maybe I misunderstood when I read the story. So, like, actually, the FDIC is just straight up gonna, gonna, whatever their shortfall, they're gonna pay like you know Patreon, Uber, whatever their yes. money back with it. Oh, okay. What what so, you were talking about is a second part of what's going on, and we're gonna get to that. And that's a broader thing across the economy. But I'm just first just want to talk about the SVB issue of providing coverage. Uh, regardless of the FDIC like limit. In a, in a perfect world, what you would do is you would deal with this, you know, whatever, give uh, the loan or whatever, cover the deposits. And then, like, you would take everybody at SBB who, like, who, who was involved in this chain of command and you put them in federal pound-me-in-the-ass prison for, like, 35 years. Like, that's what you would do. You would, you would meet out, like, horrible consequences on the people responsible for this and then maybe fix the problem because you don't want this problem to, you know, the contagion and collapse the economy. But if you just bail them out, which is what they're – I mean, I know that's what's going to happen in the end. That's always what happens. If you just bail them out, they're going to keep doing it because there's no reason not to. If, if It's like going to a casino and when you lose, you get your money back. So they're just going to keep, you know – putting everything on on double zero over and over and over again i what i see is going to become um a repeated scam in america and this is kind of conspiracy theory but um my i think what these banks are going to continue doing is um making super speculative uh bets which basically that means that they maybe they'll win some, maybe they lose some, but eventually they're going to lose, uh, or, or innovate or speculative innovations like this. Oh, we got a new way we're going to do with, um, with, uh, our bank. We're just, we got new stuff. And, uh, what's going to include part of that model is huge donations to, uh, Democrats or Democrat, <laughs> uh, or basically, or just handing out Democrat patronage themselves because of that. Uh, they'll get 
paid off with the general fund of the United States. Therefore, that's like that's like the most slam dunk politics move you can do is to steal money from the general treasury and hand it to your your guys. Yeah, and that, I mean, an SVB did do that. Uh, oh my! They were they were, I mean, they were very involved in the type of stuff you're talking about. But here's the point. Here's the part that you guys aren't seeing. And I don't blame you because like, I mean, my first reaction was the same as yours. There's a second aspect to this that really makes the first part of the, of the government's reaction, which again, is just covering the FDIC depositors, just the, the very basic thing or the non-insured deposits uh, that exceeded the FDIC limit. If you do, if you do that, like if you were to not do that and you were to let those depositors get screwed what will absolutely happen and it's already happened to some extent even with the the government promising to cover the the gap uh the depositors that matter right like depositors that have over 250 grand in deposits are going to flee community banks mm -hmm. mid-sized banks and regional banks and they're all going to go to the top four or five systemically important banks that that they know the government cannot under any circumstance permit to fail because they're too big and the contagion would be too large they have an implicit government guarantee so what would happen at that point is that all of these community regional local other type of banks they're all going to be in big trouble and they're going to start to fail because of all their capital flight to the biggest banks and you're going to end up with more of a banking oligopoly than you already have. Um, that situation, besides all of the bad stuff that you're thinking about, the uh, one country that already has a banking oligopoly, much worse than the United States, that doesn't really have a, uh, like a background around community or regional banking, is Canada. That's one of the reasons it was so easy to punish the truckers, because there's only a few banks in Canada and when there's only a few banks and they're all systemically important, those are basically quasi-governmental entities. I mean, yes. that's already to some extent to true in the United States today, but it would have gotten a lot more true uh, if there weren't actions taken to kind of create the, you know, basically the message sent right now is like that they're not going to enforce the FDIC deposit limit, right? Like they're going to, they're going to, they, they haven't literally done this. They've said it's only for, you know, SVB. But the idea here is like, you know, they're not going to let you lose your money because you're, you know, regional or midsize bank or even community bank didn't manage risk appropriately. The reason we got to this point is for bad reasons. Like, obviously, the government would be perfectly happy if everything closed other than five banks that they totally controlled. Um this was done obviously to help out their friends. Right. But it, it's a, one of those weird situations where them doing a bad thing actually had positive knock on effects. If that makes sense. Yeah. You might hate the, the, the guy who's flying your airliner. Like you, like, I hate that guy. I, he, 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 you know, stole my girlfriend and he, you know, whatever posted mean memes about me online. I want to shoot him. But you shouldn't do that when he's flying the plane, <laughs> because that's that's gonna that's gonna cause you you, you personally problems. And that's kind of where how I felt about this. I mean, not the Patreon thing. That's kind of a joke. Just like you know, I use a small bank, like that's 
local to Virginia, right? I, I, you know, this would affect me. I, I would, if they went out of, if they went out of business, uh, there would literally where I live be nowhere for me to bank. I would have to drive like 20 miles to, to, to ever get banking services. That would be a bad thing. And like, and that's not even considering people who have m like mortgages tied in and, and, and lots and, and you know, money deposited. And, you know, hey, there are a lot of people who, if tomorrow you didn't have access to your, well, I mean, this is probably everybody today because we all use, uh, uh, uh electronic stuff now if you couldn't access your bank account for like five days that probably cause you cause you serious problems right i don't i know i don't carry that much cash around on me that i could go five days these kind of disruptions would would matter it's not just a matter of like yeah yeah let's stick it to the silicon valley bank no matter how much like my instinct is we should stick it to silicon valley bank does that make right. sense yeah, yeah, and it's not, and even bigger than the disruptions that you're mentioning, like which would be bad, right, on a temporary basis. It's just, you know, like, do you want all of your money to by default with no other option have to sit with an entity that's basically the federal government, right? Because yes. there's only a few of them left, and they're you know never going to defy the federal government or even come close to it on any specific thing ever. That's why, I mean, it kind of had. This part of the 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 thing sort of had to happen. It it sucks, but it sort of had to happen. Now, to get to your Glass Steagall, would would Glass Steagall, as it was written in the 1930s, literally have prevented this? Actually, probably not, because they were investing in treasuries, right? That's the that's the weird part about this. And like you know, Glass Steagall didn't prevent you from making loans. Like it, it didn't have anything to do with your underwriting standards, and that's what they were doing to get. Uh, business from these tech companies. Now, what? There's a larger point, though. I mean, if for me, for you to say like, "Oh, well, you know, like Glass Steagall, pointless. Who cares?" Uh, now, there's a larger point here that you know, in a culture where you have something like Glass Steagall, you're also going to have other regulatory environments that spring up over time to deal with new types of business, like the one that SVB was doing. Because the, the the primary point, the point of Glass-Steagall was not what was literally written into the statute. The point was that commercial banking is supposed to be very boring, right? Like yeah. that, that was the point of it. And it, the, what was actually written in the statute was done to say, okay, based on what people were doing in the 19, between 1930 and I think it was repealed in 1999, if, I, if I'm correct. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, yeah, that you know that it worked well. Would it other things have had to have been added to the statute over time to ensure that banking remain commercial banking remained very boring? Sure, because things change over time. People come up with new schemes, whatever. But you want that regulatory structure and just general you know regulatory culture in place, such that you know the the general principle and the idea should be that commercial banking should be a very very boring business. That that see you phrased it eloquently. I kind of clumsily tried to lead into this when I was talking about you know the oligarchy. This is the this is the really basic point. You nailed it. Like banking usury should be boring. It should be like it should be a thing that sometimes happens and you can make a little bit of money off of it. It should never be the the way like the easiest way to get rich in in your in your country, your nation, what empire, whatever. That shouldn't be the way things work. And I don't mean that in a moral sense, although that is also true. It's bad like it's spiritually bad for you to be this way. Just you you're once once you reach the stage where like this is the way that like 
if, if, if Julius Caesar lived a day in America, he wouldn't be a general, right? He would be like an investment banker, wouldn't he? Like that's where he would go where the juice is. And like that's and that or, you know, Silicon Valley startup bullshit is where the juice is. This kind of speculation being the engine that fuels everything is extremely bad because eventually alpha male, male podcast. Yeah, sorry, he'd be an alpha male podcaster. But, I, you know, that's that's the basic point. You you and you've said it perfectly. You this should be boring and it's not boring. It's like the most exciting thing that happens in our country. And it. It, it, it's like the central, you know, the central hub of all the spokes of the American empire. And Correct. That, that's and, fucked up. And right. Because what was, what's supposed to happen is commercial banking is very boring. If you want to do risky stuff, you do that through an investment bank, which is, has no guarantees from the government. There's no FDIC insurance. You're just, you're, you're doing risky stuff, but you're doing it with your own money. Those investment oh, banks well. were, yeah, those investment banks historically were always general partnerships. They weren't even corporations, meaning there was like personal liability uh, for the stuff they were doing. You know what I mean? So that that's that's how that's supposed to be. Glass-Steagall basically created the union of commercial and investment banking. That never, never, ever should have happened. Now, now yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Merrick. The Fed's the the Fed. Mm said recently what their one of their solutions to this overall problem and you can feel free to correct me if i get this wrong is that basically they're going to give out loans that are priced at like i guess would it be treasury bill prices but then they're going to add like they're going to they're going to sweeten the deal a little bit yeah so here's the thing that's where i was going next so there is a second part of all this that got a lot less media attention than the covering the you know, Silicon Valley companies, uh, deposits. And that was the fed started a program and this is not limited. To, this has nothing to do with SVB because SVB is going to be wound down. Uh, th this is just, uh, any banks, uh, you will. So a lot of banks did this thing where they bought all these treasury securities at these very low interest rates that they're stuck with right now in a rising interest rate environment again, because they thought interest rates were never going to go up. The Fed will write you a, a very low interest rate loan for the full face value of those treasury securities, even though they're worth much less than their face value. <laughs> you follow what I mean? Yeah. And that way you're effectively getting the, it's almost like you haven't lost any money because you get that loan from the Fed. And then all you have to do is wait until the treasury bond matures. You get your principal back at that point and you just use the principal to pay back the loan. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make, I know what you're saying, but no, it doesn't make sense. Like this, this, this sounds like money laundering. Well, what it is, is it's money printing. It's exactly what they said they were stopping doing yeah. by raising interest rates. Right. So they're doing like what they're doing is like, they've restarted the money printer again to obviate this situation, but they're doing it while saying they're not doing it because they're not going to like cut interest rates. Right. So like this, I mean, this has the exact opposite effect of raising interest rates. So it means they're, they're, if they're serious about inflation, they're going to have to keep interest rates higher for an even longer period of time as a result of doing this. You follow what I mean? So the, yeah. this is like doing, this is like the classic, like giving with one hand and taking away with the other. That's what they're doing by having 
high interest rates, but then injecting all this money into the economy through these, you know, absurd loans. So that's that's the sketchier part of all this. And this is, you know, we've talked before on the show about the Cantillon effect. This is like, you know, if you're in the finance industry, you get all this new money before it makes its way out into the economy, meaning the inflation part of it doesn't affect you all that much. It affects everybody else, but you're the beneficiary of getting all this money that's been printed and pumped in. A friend of the podcast, Peruvian Bull, said the other day that this this seems like a scheme where they can use depositor, a.k.a. our money, to to get these... They're not even. Are they really loans at this point? Like that, it's, it's it's they're getting free money. It's not really a loan, you know. Like loan implies that you're going to be like, if you loan me money at, at, at you know interest rate, like you're, I'm giving you more money than you gave me in the end. Like I know this is a very ba- basic bitch finance thing, but like that's that's the essence of it. This scheme completely. Like does away with that, doesn't it? It's just this is like you said, well, literally them printing money and giving it to these banks. Yeah, well, I mean, in a nominal sense, I mean they're not getting paid a fair rate of interest, right? But like right. in a nominal sense, they are getting more than they loaned, right? Because you, you, Merrick, have a million dollar treasury security that I'm just making up very round numbers are worth eight hundred thousand dollars today. I loan you a million dollars. You pledge your treasury securities as collateral. You still do have to pay me a million dollars someday. You make interest payments, you know, in the meantime. So I make the, but they're piddling. They're not substantial. So you make your piddling interest payments to me. That's my quote unquote profit, supposedly. Uh, And then when your treasury security matures and you get paid the full face value on maturity, of a million dollars, that's what you use to pay off the loan that I made to you. <laughs> so in a very, very nominal sense, yes, I'm getting paid more than I lent out, but you know, that's again, emphasis on the word nominal. Uh, what, I'm going to bog beef here. Is it, is the, the phrase is like opportunity cost or something like, something like that, which is like basically that mo- Yeah, technically more money is coming back, but like y- the amount of money the government's giving them could have been used for other things to like to, to you know, get better return than what they're doing. So in that sense, it, you're, you are like you are giving you're giving something away. The potential, Correct. the potential, 100%. yeah. Uh, and, anyway. you're, and you're giving away. I mean, and you're giving away inflation too, because like what you're doing yeah. is like you're you know if in theory you want to stop doing interest rate hikes as soon as you can. Well, this is going to prolong it because you just threw a bunch of new money in the economy. Hillbilly Elegy says the. <laughs> The Fed is operating according to uh, traditional Islamic tenets and has uh, removed usury from banking principles. It's a a glorious day for people who oppose uh, usury. Uh, Anyway, what friend friend of the pot, Peruvian Bull, said that you could, in theory, use this as a money laundering scheme to take depositor money, get these... (laughs) <laughs> "Quote unquote new loans and just keep kind of cycling that money back through. Is that could could you do that? Well, I mean, yeah, I think his point was, and I I read his tweet very quickly, so if I misunderstood it, um, I apologize. But I believe his point was like you could just go out 
by these securities and then immediately, you know, from the government, right? Because that, when, when these banks buy treasury securities from the government, they're doing it with your money, right? Like they're doing it with the depositors' money. So not just your money, but businesses' money, everything. So they take deposits, they go and buy these treasury securities. Uh, and then in exchange, like they know they can always get a loan against them. So it's never going to create a liquidity issue. In other words, like if you Merrick need your money back, your millions, like uh, they know they'll be able to pay back the deposit because they can always just get a loan against their treasury securities. Uh, and um, one of the, uh, the other banks is the First Republic Bank. This is kind of a, a different issue. Well, for one thing, the, the first two banks that you talked about, Signature and Silver, what? Silvergate, right? Yeah, Signature and Silvergate, yeah. One of them kind of like was involved in FTX, and the other had kind of perhaps what you could say like a uh, problems with their crypto business that led to a bank run. That wasn't necessary. It wasn't definitely wasn't the same problem that Silicon Valley Bank had, right? Yeah, it was a different issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, with respect to Signature, they both were bad at managing liquidity. Um, you, you know, with uh, speaking about Signature right now, uh, so that that is one co potential common thread that's v in a very, very generalized way. But yeah, they, they are different situations. Now, First Republic Bank, they got bailed out, but not by the federal government. They got bailed out by, bank well, I'll read off the list, Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, just a list of all the, of all the big banks. They got bailed out by the bigger banks. What, did First Republic have like, serious systemic problems or was this straight up just a bank run where people got scared and started moving their money and it threatened to they had they had potential liquidity issues i don't know the exact drivers in the first republic situation um liquidity issues such that they could have been susceptible to a bank run as a result they were looking for a buyer uh and then instead like basically these other big banks just kind of you know made deposits to to kind of quell the issue either because they felt that a bank, you know, it could spread and the bank run, at least in the short term, would be bad for them or potentially because the, <laughs> you know, people up top made some phone calls and said, Hey, like you guys got to do this. This is the thing you mentioned it earlier. If these companies are, these banks are essentially part of the federal government, you know, not, not by law, but de facto, well, they're not. They don't want the people who are in who are uh, occupying the Oval Office right now to to, to get uh, to get John McCain. Right? They don't want that to happen because that's their team, and it's going to cause problems for them down the road if this leads into another banking crisis. And then you know, President Trump or President DeSantis can you know do whatever. Do you think that weighs into the decision at all? Yeah, I'm sure that it does. And just also the general thing that there would be economic disruption, even in in the short term in a mid-sized banking run, which is just not good for uh, uh, Joe Biden's re-election chances, right? It's just kind of like, this, you know, just that's just natural politics stuff. Economic turbulence is not something you want happening right before you go up for re-election. Yeah, the last, the last big bank, and this was kind of the... I guess yesterday really was kind of the scarier moment. Although, as you were t talking with me earlier about, we're not really, can't say we're out of the woods. Credit Suisse 
which is kind of I, I like I, said, I don't know a lot about banking, but I do know that like if you if you've read the news in the last ten or ten or so years, like Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse are just like uh, getting getting their d- clapped constant. I'm oh, sorry, are are just getting hammered. Is that was there a specific thing that that happened that put them in danger here, or was this simply another another bank run? Like what what happened with Credit Suisse? Yeah, I mean it, it was an issue where they had a you know deposit flight. I don't know the specific. I have not read anything in depth yet on the specific situation that caused their liquidity crunch. So I don't know enough about exactly what their underlying problems are partially because they're you know they're in europe so i'm just less familiar with them in general and it doesn't matter because the swiss national bank bailed them out so in their specific example it doesn't matter but more what was more important was you told me that you didn't think that we're really out of the woods that this necessarily is not over yeah i mean we just don't know uh like where where does it stop? A lot of it is psychological, like we've already talked about. You know what I mean? Um, I have heard just whispers about things like, such as, uh, uh, you know, P, uh, institutions moving their money out of banks and into like money market funds, like true money market funds, uh, just because they feel at the current time there's less risk in doing that. Um, now I think more, I forget the name of it right now. It escapes me, but certain banks have a system where if you're a large business depositor overnight, they sweep all your money in $250,000 increments into a bunch of other member banks in their network, such that you're fully covered. Uh, we'll probably see more large institutions using that service. You know what I mean? Going forward, uh, to try and protect their deposits. Um, we also could see the F. I mean, I it probably won't happen right now. I don't think we're there yet. But the other thing is the FDIC limit could get raised again, right? For most of my life, it was a hundred grand. Yeah, I thought it, yeah. I, I I didn't know if it was a hundred thousand. It was a hundred thousand or, or or not. You know, I, the, I could. I, what the two fifty was like a two thousand eight, two thousand nine thing that was not at the time intended to be permanent, but it became permanent, um, you know, uh, during that crisis. So, you know, it's not like out of the realm of possibility. It could be raised to 500. It could be raised to a million. It could, I mean, we're kind of at the point where there's like an implicit unlimited FDIC guarantee. You know what I mean? Uh, I would, I wouldn't want to gamble on that. (laughs) You know what I, you know what I mean? That's why we're seeing these, sweep systems like I mentioned pop up or like some of these money market situation. But, uh, you know, uh, I would, like I said, I wouldn't want to gamble on it, but it is possible that they could just go to unlimited FDIC insurance too. I mean, that that's not totally out of the realm of possibility. So there was a one last question I wanted to ask you. This is not like a, a, a you know, fact or fiction thing. This is kind of a, a judgment call because I've seen, more than usual, like uh, people who have dissenting opinions about this, who like it doesn't normally when like when there there's people who feel passionately one way or the other about an issue, you can tell like their pedigree. Like if you know whatever you're talking about abortion or, or, or you know gun control, whatever you can you can figure out who's on cup what size. side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cup, yeah, cup, uh, cup size. Yeah. The, I don't think they're all great. 
<laughs> I've seen some very uh, heterodox opinions about whether or not the Fed should continue to raise interest rates after what's happened. I've seen people say that it would be basically uh, financial sabotage for them to keep doing it. And I've seen people say that it would be sabotage to stop doing it because, you know, inflation's going to eat everything that we own. I'm more, like, I, I lean to the latter because for, for, like, for me, I, I, I care more about inflation than I, than I, I'm not, I don't have a Silicon Valley startup, you know, you know what I'm saying? I care more about inflation, but I don't know anything about finance. What do you, you do? What do you think? Well, it's always better for regular people, honestly, to have not necessarily ultra high, but to have interest rates higher, right? Because it controls inflation, uh, which inflation eats up a lot more of your income or my income than it does Bill Gates's income, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and secondly, uh, you know, this is like more of a minor thing, but like we can actually put money in like CDs and stuff that yeah. actually earn interest now, right? Like. I, I mean, I don't mind saying it on the air, like out, outside of uh, every people know that I have a lot of Bitcoin, but like uh, outside of that, uh, I'm not in the market at all right now. I have like a bunch of CDs spread all over the place and they pay like four and a half percent, which is not, you know, that's not so terrible, uh, especially the last time you could get a CD paying that much that I remember in my lifetime was like the 90s, basically. Uh, since then... Yeah. Maybe very early 2000s. Since then, I mean, a CD has not been worth jack shit. Basically, you get like nothing. Well, so I, I got a yeah. guy. I got a guy. Guaranteed 10 percent every year. Guaranteed 10. <laughs> I got a guy. You're throwing your money. You ever had? You ever had that? Somebody do that yep. to you? Yep. 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 Yeah. Well, uh, the CD thing is funny. I remember when I was uh, a kid. You know, get like when I was starting to get old enough to. You know, I, I got I got a checking account when I was a kid, right? It's like, here's your checking account. You can put your, you know, whatever allowance money in this. And this is how basically you need to learn how to how to do these things. You need to learn how to write checks and balance a checkbook and manage your finances, which is funny because, like, actually, you, well, you kind of do need to know how to, like, write checks and balance a checkbook, but not really anymore. But the, the thing was, like, my grandfather would say, you know, the, the thing you should really do is you should get you a CD and put your money in that. It's nice, safe, and you'll make some interest. And, like, interest rates were pretty, were pretty high at the time. You could do that, and it wasn't stupid. If it's, like, you know, I don't know, 2000 and 2007 or whatever, you'd almost have to be an idiot, right, <laughs> to, to, to have a CD because... Yeah, it was pointless. Yeah, yeah the, I mean, the opportunity cost is what I was looking for is, is astronomical, but now... We can do stuff like uh, regular guys can make moves. We don't get our, you know, our savings and our salaries eaten up by by inflation. So I guess my grug brain take was correct. They should continue the tightening that they've been doing. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I would agree with that for the most part. And you know, you, you, the, the idea behind something like a savings account or a CD isn't to get rich, but it's at least to just keep you in the ball game, right? Like, yeah, just kind of keep you going. And it's, you know, look, there was a time, I mean, my parents had CDs like in the 80s and that were paid like 12%, right? Like real yeah. outrageous stuff. That can be a bad sign too, because a lot of times, you know, it can mean stuff's getting so out of control that there there's really extreme measures being taken with interest rates. But, you know, we're not in that situation right now. Well, we, you know, one time a, a while back, we were kind of discussing this, and I, I, I got into it a little bit, but I didn't phrase it the proper way. The, the, the problem here, and this is how you can kind of tell if, if your economy is good for regular people or not. It's that, you know, 
does the money that you earn loses loses value like faster than you can make it? And that's not literally like, unless you live in, in Zimbabwe, that's not literally true. But like you can become functionally poor every year despite your salary going up. Like we should know that because it's happened to like like working people in America. I think the only time that, that I, it's, it's it's been a, a fact of life for a lot of people in, in the last decade. We'll we'll be nice and put it that way. And this is a huge problem because this means that you have you have to get involved in the casino or you have to work twice as hard to stay above above water. Meanwhile, the people who are running the casino get bailed out with your <laughs> with your tax money whenever they screw up. And this is not a sustainable system. People will quickly lose not only faith in it, but just interest in it. And I, I, you know, I'm not trying to throw too much sociology gobbledygook into this, but there are all these speculations about why do the younger generation not care about work as much as previous and are they lazy or whatever, not make as much money, not doing this or not doing that. You know, if you make, if you make, if you line the incentives up like this, I don't know which how big of a percentage, but there are some percentage of, of people who are just like, well, screw it. What's the point? You know, I could bust my ass like my dad did his entire life and not make it anywhere, or I can just do whatever, you know, and go with the flow. And I think people will make that decision. Maybe not, certainly not everybody, maybe not even most people, but if if 15% of the, of the, like, of your generation take that attitude, you're living in a radically different country than your parents did by itself. Does this make sense? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, in, in that sense, uh, I, 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 screw, Silicon, <laughs> screw Silicon Valley. I, I don't trust the advice of any of these people who are screaming about bailouts for for the well, I don't, I don't trust anybody who's screaming about bailouts. I feel I, I'm suspicious of their motives every every time. Yeah, I mean, you should be. It's like anything else today. Anything that it's a safe assumption that your federal government is doing stuff that is not designed to help you. <laughs> that was so diplomatic. <laughs> Let me read something here. Um, by the way, I've been hooked on these flavored toothpicks. You guys ever tried these things? No, you, yeah, you, you, uh, keyed us up on that last time. They're awesome. I got to figure out how to make them because they're expensive though. <laughs> okay, here we go. <clears throat> this is from, uh, someone on the board of MIT and Forbes and a hedge fund CEO from 2012 to 2020. They do not really look like someone to be like, oh, that's a hedge fun seat. It looks like a woman in her like twenties. Like, yeah, okay. <clears throat> the SVB collapse has been devastating in more ways than one. They supported women, minorities in the LGBTQ community more than any <laughs> other big bank. This includes not just diverse events, but actual funding. What does actual funding mean? I think like she's talking about that venture debt. In other words, like what, they probably went out of their way to provide yeah um financing for like lgbt 
uh, run companies. That's my assumption in terms of what she means. Sounds like patronage to me. Absolutely. Many, yes. many companies had cash in SVB, including companies like Etsy. Uh, blah, blah, blah. The SVB staff are one of a kind. Many of them come from traditional banks with toxic cultures. SVB helped allow them to break the mold and create a healthy, innovative startup ecosystem. I just want to put a gun in. Okay. <laughs> well, there was a, it was a, it's not even really a story, but I just, I wanted to, I had it in the notes to mention it, that, you know, the ESG, the ESG rating is now like the, uh, I guess the moral hygiene of the business world. You got to have ESG compliance, which is a, environment environmental uh sociology textbook bullshit and then governance and the funny thing is like governance doesn't seem to have anything to do with like risk assessment when you're when you're banking or whatever it's just like let's make sure that you're not that you, you know you're not polluting the environment anyway uh the the ESG rating company that's supposedly saying this is a good company they said that S, the, the, this bank SVB and one of the other banks, it might have been Signature, whatever. This is great bank. They're doing great. They're 100% healthy. A-plus rating. You know, uh, great seller on eBay. A-plus-plus plus would, you know, would trade again. And then the bank collapses a week later, and they ask them, you know, well, how do you, how do you square this circle? This doesn't make sense. You said it was a good, it was a well-run company, and they're not. And they kind of hemmed and hawed, like, well, well, you know, there was th things we couldn't foresee, but... Like it's 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 not unforeseeable. Like the ESG compliance, ESG crap is just basically how it's like a it's a it's a religious test. How does your like, you have how, to give money to Democrats? How it, no, I mean yes, but it's like how progressive is your company? What is it doing for like the the progressive religion? Like is is it a for good, Democrats? Is, right, right. I know. I'm just saying. Don't when you say how much money you give to Democrats, that's not if if it was just like are you paying your bribes to the Democratic Party, you could probably you could you that would be okay, like you could do that. This is worse because like it's like how many middle how many uh, middle man progressive middle managers are you hiring? Are you giving out your loans to these and by those metrics they were killing it just like the, what you read off. They were I mean it was great. I'm sure if you were a like a black lesbian lady in a wheelchair, you were going to get your you're going to get your loan for your startup, no problem, because you are you are a preferred a preferred client of okay, well, this political machine. Here's um, a lesbian and bisexual bisexual voters make make up a relatively small share of the American electorate. Just five percent of voters in the, in the 2012. This is this is from 2016. The 2012 general election. Well, it's it's like triple that now. Uh, identified as LGB according to national exit polls, but they have long been a deeply, deeply democratic constituency and today are overwhelmingly negative in their assessment of Donald Trump. Nearly nine in 10 LGBT voters um, rank the president, rank Trump the worst. Um, <clears throat> by contrast, Hillary Clinton is viewed positively. So, um, you know, that's that thing. It's like, well, we're going to give money to uh, LGBT or whatever. Well, you know, they're big numbers, people. They're just like, well, you know, maybe one, maybe Peter Thiel might get a nickel, but generally, hey, we're going to pay our guys. 
And that's how you got to think in in a in a big country with 300 million people. Yes, but it's it's worse than that because it's not just like oh, if, if you said we're going to give uh, every you know every uh, ADOS person in America reparations, that would be doing what you're saying. However, the what are we doing for the LGBT community also means there's a shitload of NGOs you can give money to. It, it, you're, you're, you're funding the middle management of this political movement and religion. And like, that's like, that's, that's worse than just straight up saying, we're going to donate. We're going to bribe the democratic party. Like, you know, Sam Bankman fried did like that kind of corruption. America could, could, could survive. You can deal with that level of corruption. It's it's the it's ironically like I think one of the parts of governance is making sure you don't have corruption in your company. It's kind of funny when you think when you think about like what what it actually is. Corruption is fake. <clears throat> yeah. Any but yeah, corruption is when you when you give uh, money to the clients of the enemy. Like that's yeah, <laughs> that, that's corruption. But anyway, my point my point here, if 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 there was a point, is that. ESG is complete. Like I mean, if you listen to this, you know ESG is completely fake. It's basically a metric of how loyal you are to this political machine, and they kind of they didn't admit it. But if you look at these articles, it's funny because they're they're trying to come up with a plausible excuse for why they reached these conclusions a week ago, when you know nothing, no no information has really changed since then. Uh, but you know they're at the stage now where I'm not sure they have to like. They have. They need an excuse. It's just something you could say for them is good in essence. Like supporting yep. the LGBT community is good in essence because for whatever reason it's it's better to be LGBT than to be a normal person. No one's ever really explained why that is, but that's just because you're going to vote Democrat. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's, so the, that's literally it. I know, but like usually you have a plausible excuse for for for, for political beliefs, right? Usually you do. You have something like you have an explanation, but in this case, you don't have an explanation. It's just simply because uh, the great spirit says says it so. Anyway, uh, it was it was funny. Credit Suisse had a guy on the on the uh, a person on the board is like a cross dresser. Uh, the one of the big shots at the SBB was I think a, a, a they them a they them lady who was really into social justice causes. This is going to pop up more and more. I don't know if it's causative, if like these, these people are just incompetent, or it's just simply by virtue of, since these people were part of the ruling class now, you're going to see more of them in ruling positions, because that's how it works. It's or just, if they're particularly incompetent, but that's just, you're going to see this over and over. It's again. just advanced signaling. I think at some point, we could see among, I don't know, because it's not really the thing, but we'll see some kind of signaling that'll let you signal without taking the nest deep plunge. Well, that already is. That's the Q. You can just say you're that. It doesn't matter. The what? The Q and the LGBTQ. Oh, right, right. You just get like purple hair or whatever. And you just, yeah, you uh, say, I'm just, yeah, I'm yeah. Just, <laughs> you know, you're saying like something was spiritually true when we are talking about Caesar and Brutus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, you're spiritually gay, right? You're not well, doing that's it. The, in a way, I mean, that's the Credit Suisse guy, right? Because he didn't have yeah. surgery or anything. He just sometimes he showed up to work in a suit. Sometimes he showed up to work in a dress. Yeah, it's it's funny because like you, you see a guy like that and I think that uh, uh, Uncle Steve kind of nailed them because he went to he he went to college with one of these guys who became 
he's an insanely successful businessman who became a uh, insanely successful businesswoman. And, and Sailor's theory about them is that like there's these these like high T alpha male kind of guys who like they become their sexual fetish is you. I'm going to throw on a dress and you're going to have to pretend that I'm a lady, and you have. I'm going to force you to go along with this and like you agreeing with this is part of like the humiliation or just part of what gets me off. I enjoy you calling me ma'am. He like, also he also said there was some kind of like super achievement. Like he brought up, there's a huge amount of Navy SEALs that do right. this. And right. And he's like, and their thing is like, I can do anything. I can, I can swim across the channel. I could, I could run, run a hundred miles. I could become a woman. It's, yeah. it's, it's big among veterans, period. Like, way big, like, way, way, way proportionally higher than the general population. I don't have an explanation for that, but it's, they might be like the single largest group, that, honestly, that you break down that that's a thing. It's like, there's a reason, you know, for Chelsea Manning and some of the other ones we've seen. Like, that's not, I don't want to say it's not unusual because it's still unusual, but for some reason, it's, more usual than should be among veterans. It wasn't. It it was unusual, but it wasn't unheard of to see these kind of people, like the you know, the people who made the Matrix, the the dudes who made the Matrix movies, who are now dudettes. Like you know, Sailor has a lot of fun, you know, talking about their influences and the movie they made is like the most masculine movie, like the, the most ma- masculine <laughs> kind of movie you could possibly. Dude, like he's like, this is not really the movie that somebody who always in their heart felt that they were female would make, and, and but the the thing is like those people did exist, like I guess uh, Bruce and then Caitlyn Jenner was kind of an example of that that became like became talked about in and of itself. But you also have like the the sad sack people who were like they're they're in a low place in life, and this is just something that you can do to make yourself either. Well, yeah, there's always, there's always like, uh, which by the way, remember this, that's the Blanchard model. The Blanchard model, there are like Ripos Twitch says high T rolls over to zero. If you break the cap, like an old arcade. (laughs) Yeah, because it's a, that's a Steve, Steve Saylor said, it's basically like you just max out the, like, cause he, the high T, cause he was saying like, essentially before this got popular, the most the most like uh if the, the the career that was the absolute most male uh the most male career was military historian mm-hmm. and now this now this job is like 40% transgender uh which is like like cuz there's well anyways there's that but the you know there's also the, and i think the uh the thing where it's like um uh super super gay guys like where there's literally where there's literally just not much difference between them being a woman or a man. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think like the Manning, Paul Lind kind of guy, right? I don't know who that is, but I know like Manning was like that. You know, like interior decorator, hairdresser. Their whole life is surrounded by women, and they're either in a super effeminate man or a woman. It's not all that different. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. yeah. And we gotta be you gotta be careful about what you say about this. But uh, what was what struck me about this is that it mirrors everything else in this. We'll say political coalition. It's a, a union between the highest and the lowest in status. 
you have people who are just like the the absolute bottom rung who, you know, swap sexes because you know why not? Why not do that? I, I'm not I'm not I'm not killing it. You know, who, as who I am. Maybe I hate my body, you know, abused or whatever, or just nothing's going for me. So I'm going to do this and, and move up a notch. And you have these these guys who, like, and it's almost all men. I think that they, that that Ellen Page is the only one offhand I can think about who went from female to male, like the uh, who was who was like high status. It, it, to them, like this is a you know you you're you're make you're bending the world to your will. You're forcing them to to bow down to your perception of warped reality. It's a, it's a coalition of the high and the low versus everybody in the middle. And it's just, it's just funny how er, almost everything mirrors that. Well, it's not funny. It's exactly what you'd expect. If this is the thing, like if this is the, the, like the central thing that everything revolves around in America, then I guess this is exactly what would happen. Everything would be high and low versus middle. That CEO thing, that's still, that's still sticking in my head because Okay, what that CEO was doing is not new. I mean, so there's a thousand rock songs about Santa Monica Boulevard. Um, there's a place in New York where this is like a uh, a niche of, pro- of male prostitution. Yes. Yeah, this is the like this is some you, the only time you saw transsexuals before. I, I don't know the last ten years was on cops, right? It was, a, it was, it was a, that <laughs> was the, when you would at, see them at the truck stop and shit like that. Yeah. yeah, it was. It wasn't like a thing that people talked about or thought about until very, very recently. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It was like Jay Edgar Hoover and the guy giving out five dollar handies at the truck stop. These were the two people. It's always high and low. Yeah. And never the twain shall meet. It was. It's people talk about Thailand. It was a certain guys that guy into prostitution rented this um uh who's the uh Be guy the guy was the center for the um the magic D- dwight howard yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be very careful <laughs> he's, he's he's probably still got people down in your area you better yeah. watch your step yeah yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Look over your shoulders, a seven foot tall shadow coming your way. You know, what was funny about that? They said that like in his text or whatever, he was suggesting he wanted to be the catcher. Yeah. That was the scandal. Well, yeah, that was the among you, NBA players. I want to, I want to, I want to see this. Like, I want to see who's <laughs> going to take that off. This guy's going like, to need a step ladder. <laughs> this guy's like six, you know, six, 11, 350 pounds. You're just going to, uh, you're just gonna take care of business. The funny thing about him, like with Dwight Howard, and we'll, we'll get we'll get off this weird thing soon, is that like his shoulders and stuff. He had like the the physique of a Greek god. Like there are a lot of big basketball players, but most of them are like willowy or whatever. Not him. He looked like if 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 you were like sculpting like a, you know a a, a like a, a hero from like mythology, you would make you would like he would have his build and. <laughs> Oh yeah, so he was. Uh, so he was yes, like he a, was really Greek in more than one way. <laughs> yeah, he. Was, I mean, he was like a video game character. That was like. Um, he, you remember when he uh, slam dunk contest? He dunked a twelve foot. Yeah, uh, wearing a tw- Superman cape, right? Yeah, that was like his thing. Kind of like that. That that uh, point. That there was that point guard for Oklahoma. Uh, it was like Westbrook. Not really great skills, but he had just insane physical gifts and stuff. But. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I hope he, I hope he left a big tip. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I don't know. When I hear that stuff, I just hear like addiction. I guess. What like his example? Yeah, he. If that's true about him, he would be the the people that Sailor was talking about because he had like didn't he have like ten kids with women too? Oh it wasn't yeah, like, yeah. So that's but, why, that's where I just hear addiction. Like where you hear like like um you got to keep up in the ante no matter what. Yeah, they're just people that are on lots of drugs do all kind of stuff, and I, I don't think it really says anything about them not on drugs. Like who is the um. Uh, the tiger blood guy, Charlie Sheen. Yeah. I don't think he was homosexual before he got on drugs. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know that that he was ever. Is that, was that how he, well, he got, got AIDS? <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, that could have been from uh sharing needles though. I mean, yeah, he was, all, was, he was way, he was way into drugs. So, well, okay. He was doing stuff. I'll just tell you that <laughs> he was doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, so that's just so to wrap it up, that's just like our financial system. <laughs> Making their way the only way they know how. Well, that's just a little bit more than the whole